Hi, this is Michael Henry Harris. Welcome to the Origin Story Podcast. For those that are new, there are two types of episodes on the Origin Story Podcast. The process episodes, which chronicle musician Will Harway and I as we work on a new album and novel respectively. And episodes like today's, conversations from superheroes from all walks of life. If you haven't, you probably need to sign up for the flock email. It's two emails a month, one containing your minimum monthly dose of art, and the other giving insight and updates on everything Pinecone Turkey related, including our 12 Authors, 12 Stories anthology series, available on Amazon, and podcasts like this one. Okay, today's superhero is Brandon Ty. Brandon has been a commodities trader, a wine salesman, and most recently a beekeeper and entrepreneur. Uh, this was a fun conversation. Not only did I get to hear about Brandon's childhood and college days, which definitely shaped him, but I also got to try some of his amazing honey. Uh, he brought generous samples of a variety of the honeys, which we taste and discuss, and we did our very best to paint an audio picture of what we are tasting. I think it translates, but if you're listening to this and leave wanting more, I cannot encourage you enough to visit Brandon at one of the various farmer's markets or festivals next time that you're in Atlanta in the spring or summer. Uh, he does a great job of explaining the honeys, the process of the bees making the honey, and then what he does to extract it. We, uh, and I've seen him in action at different places talking about it. It's, it's great to watch. He's so passionate about it, and he's so knowledgeable about it. Uh, there are links to his company, Honey Next Door's website, and his Instagram, so you can find out uh, where he'll be and how to purchase. They will do mail orders. And let me tell you, the honey is just flat out amazing. And the first time I had it, it was it was just eye-opening. Uh, there are lots of links in the show notes, including a link to a recent New York Times article. It actually came out yesterday. It's entitled, On the Trail of Tupelo Honey, Liquid Gold from the Swamps. It's by Kim Severson, and it's a great article, and Brandon is featured prominently in it. So uh, I won't lie. We get into the weeds a bit discussing biology and chemistry, but it's worth the deep dive, I think, to hear how Brandon talks about something that he clearly loves and, and he does a great job of breaking it down into um, <laughs> small words and sentences that even I could understand. All right, this is a long one, so take your time getting through it. And definitely listen to the end to find out how and why Brandon is undefeated in drag contests while still retaining his amateur status. All right, I hope you enjoy everyone. Brandon Ty, How's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How you doing, man? I'm doing well. A little nervous, but hopefully... It'll, it'll go all right. It'll all be over before you know it. <laughs> uh, first of all, just what do we have in front of us in the table? We're going to get to this later, right. but I do want to just introduce the joy that is here. Okay, so we have um, a few different types of honey. We have three that are local, well, actually four that are local to Atlanta. And then we have Tupelo, which is from South Georgia um, and North Florida. Florida will uh, swear that it's only made in Florida, but uh, it's made half in South Georgia and half in North Florida. We have Sourwood which is not from this past season. Uh, it didn't produce, but this is um, from a friend's hive, and we don't make it as of yet. Um, but this is made all in the Appalachians. Uh, it's, these two are kind of the most premium honey um, in the country, and we're lucky to have them both in Georgia, which is really, or it's really interesting because you know other places have like fireweed in Northwest. It's, you know, it's all right, and mesquite in Texas and all these you know, local honeys, but we, we're really lucky to have the two premium ones. And then we have Candler Park from my backyard. And then we have Buckhead and my in-laws place that is near Westminster High School, or I guess they go all the way. And then um, 
Inman Park, which is at a private residence near Freedom Park. Then we have Creamed Honey from Decatur, which is also local. And then I guess this is local too, but I've added, this is from um, Heisen Morningside. And I've added some organic habanero, so it's kind of a spicy honey that we're saving for the last. Outstanding. All right, so that's a teaser. We're going to get into that just a little bit later. So when people uh, meet you and you're at a cocktail party and you actually want to continue the conversation, what do you tell them that you do? Uh, I, I honestly just say I'm a, I'm a beekeeper. And, and then you're trapped for like two hours? Or yeah, I mean, hour? sort of. People are like, what? Or they, they like, run away. Which I mean, I, you know, I try to make it sound cooler, like, oh, I own a honey company. But honestly, I'm like a beekeeper. It's uh, The sales are just, uh, you know, have to happen in order to keep the, the company going and keep, you know, keep me paying for uh, all the bees and all the equipment and everything. But, uh, yeah, it's a funny story. I, I um, just went to Costa Rica for a friend's 40th birthday party, and one of the random questions uh, and immigration is, oh, what is your occupation? And I said, beekeeper. And I thought I would get something like, you know, what? Right. Just, <laughs> just typed it in and like move along. I was like, all right. I got Stupid Americans. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I'm a shepherd. <laughs> uh, where did you grow up? Uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, started out kind of uh, in the suburbs and the, the city sort of grew out into us. Um, and how did your parents get there? Uh, so... My dad went to got his PhD at Duke, and my mom got her uh, was doing a library sciences degree, a master's in UNC. Oh wow! And uh, they met folk dancing. Believe it or not, uh, I have some memories of some vague memories of running around while all the parents are doing some crazy dances, and we're running around and behind all the, the auditorium and stuff. Um, then they moved up to South Orange in New Jersey, and. You know, that's a good question. I don't remember exactly why he moved back down to Raleigh, but I think, you know, he had some roots here. So um, they moved back, I believe, in the early 70s. So one a PhD, one master's library science. I don't know if she ever, I don't think she actually ever got it. <laughs> she, <laughs> right, well, she went. She was pursuing, but it sounds <laughs> yeah. like a very uh, intellectual household. Was that kind of how it was? or? Uh, kind of, yeah. I mean, my, I, I could always tell my dad was really smart, but it, it wasn't like a thing he wore on his sleeve more or less so it what wasn't did he get his phd in? uh civil engineering so geo, he's a geotech so he does um you know soils and soils testing soils engineering um compaction test so a lot of the unglamorous uh, things for building putting big buildings up he does a lot of the unglamorous stuff that's uh, digging in the dirt before even like the concrete can be poured i got you where and was he still alive and yes so he lives in las vegas now all right um, cool been there for like 10 years or so so you spent your formative years, like middle school, high school, was that was Raleigh? All the way, yeah. It's a little boring. Same house, same everything. It was a, a retirement. Not really retirement, but everybody was really old. Uh, so not a lot of kids, but thankfully, because we were kind of latchkey kids, uh, thankfully we had neighbors just down the street that took us in every day, and like they're like our brothers, and uh, it couldn't have asked for like. I'm looking for those kids for my kids now, you know, like right. I want to know where the Metzgers are that, for my kids, you know, that we could basically spend every waking second together growing up. And well, so who's the, we You had brothers and sisters or do so you my, Mark, I have an older brother. Okay. And they had uh, two brothers that were the younger was my age almost. And the older was my brother's age and they had a sister in the middle. So, I mean, we literally spent every waking minute 
especially in the summer over there. Is that because they were both your both parents were working at the time, and so like you would go home from school and then hang out with them, or well, like what was the situation? Well, my uh, parents got uh, divorced uh, when I was or separated earlier, and then got divorced. I can't remember exactly when, but it was third grade is when I kind of remember. So uh, my dad worked full time um, with his company. So I mean, it was a little different back then. You know, kids could unlock, you know, just sort of stay and watch TV and stuff. So, but literally, we would get home and immediately go over the Mets series and. My dad is, still says, like, thank God they were <laughs> yeah. in because, you know, they, they watched out for us. And, Are you, you know. still in touch with them? Oh, yeah. Uh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're like brother. Like, you know, you have a list of people you give a kidney to. Like, yeah. For sure, they're all on that list. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. That's amazing. I don't have that list. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm really lucky. Really lucky. That's very, very cool. Yeah. So uh, you went to high school in Raleigh. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of student were you? Were you? Terrible. Really? Yeah. I was, I was really bad. And, and, it's, and it's bad because... Yeah, I I always try to do the least amount of work to get by, which is not a good you know roadmap to, for success. And uh, I, I was really lucky that my brother was a really good student, so I got like I don't want to say legacy, but you know we were magnet and stuff, and so uh, we had like a hour long bus ride to get to our school. And I think the only reason I got in is because my brother was in, and then the only reason I got in, well I, I did it okay on my SATs, but. Um, my dad and brother both went to Georgia Tech. So I think I got into Georgia Tech because of that. <laughs> so I was not a very good student, unfortunately. So were you aware at the time that like, you know, hey, I'm kind of half-assing this, but I'm still getting by? Or was this something you're, you realized looking back? Kind of both. I remember when I first started the magnet school, I was like, I'm not going to miss any homework. Like, I'm going to do it all. And I remember missing one thing by accident and I was like oh this is it and then like then I was, the dam had broken and I mean I wasn't a terrible student but you know I was a solid like BC student um, okay well that's I mean that's I wasn't failing anything but I was not you know I mean the, the high school I went to it's just all overachievers so I was the bell curve on the other side right unfortunately what were you into um that's a good question what was I into but I mean we did a lot of uh like you know in high school i'm trying to think we you know just hanging out with friends and um do you play sports i did i played i played every i played every sport but baseball growing up okay but it, i wouldn't say i was like a sports guy like that wasn't what defined me i i also again like put in the minimal effort you know well I, <laughs> yeah like when i was young you just you know naturally good and i was like oh man i love being that this is so rewarding and and then what I find in almost everything is that the naturally, t- I mean, look at like Nick Curious or like Bernard Tomic or something like, not to pick on Australians, but no, the these people are Australian that, tennis players, but oh, for, the, for, our, for our listeners who may not know that, but I mean, they have so much talent or people that have the most talent get surpassed by those who work harder and may have less talent. I mean, then you have like people that are exceptional, like Lionel, Leo Messi and Federer and stuff. But so the people that were, um, working harder at home because we always had all these things we're supposed to ju- you know run because I, I had um, in soccer I was in a somewhat um, competitive league and you're supposed to run like a couple times a week and do all these drills at home and I never did a single one and and so everybody started surpassing me and then that lack of motivation you know kicks in and then I he was like oh I'm just gonna play run. anyway but it wasn't really what it wasn't it's not like what I would call my, you know, really into sports, been right. But I played them all. About about clubs or anything like that? Were you? Um, <laughs> like I wish, like I wasn't in a like, <laughs> yeah. club or. 
Well, the, re- the reason why I ask, and I think this will come up often during the conversation, is one of the things that I think you know you have a reputation for, and one of the things that people respect and admire is that you seem to find an interest or a hobby, and just fucking dive in. Oh man. yeah, like, you don't no, for sure. It. So it's it's interesting to hear this. Do you now I'm remembering a lot of things that I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> well do you, is this is this something you think you battled and overcame or is this something you're continuing battle this either I don't know if it's perceived or actuality like the feeling of um of half-assing or not being uh, hard work and I explain it because this is something that I struggle with my own self and identity and wondering if it's perceived or actual also there was a turning point in college where it all turned uh, it switched so i all was right, let's uh, go to college we're, yeah so to georgia tech, tech. Got in. yeah i went i got in and i was a. Uh, I was just gonna the plan was for my brother and i to take over my dad's um um geotech company uh and and early on you know it's just all science and and math based courses and those were fine and then i started getting into like the real nitty gritty of like deformable mechanics of deformable bodies, statics and dynamics and all these things. And while I really like them, the core classes I really didn't like at all. And then I worked for my dad for a um, summer and it was literally just me by myself running in a, like a wooded lot, like acreage and then going on a computer by myself and typing up reports. And I was like, this is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) This is not what I want to do with my life. And my grades were slipping um, and it's just like, this is, I don't want to be an engineer not, not to disparage engineers. It's just not what I, I feel like my strength is. So I switched to economics, had a little academic scare, uh, and totally turned around. I was like president's Dean's list for the rest. And I, and I really felt like I liked it. I like finance. I like, I like calculus and economics. I feel like economics is cause you take calculus and it's cool because you can do these, uh, calculations that tell you, you know, the, how the stress on a beam I was like, but I don't really care about like uh, that's not something that really interests me but economics is calculus applied to everyday life you know why somebody does something why a country does something like uh, the the behavior of a consumer the behavior of of you know macro level governments and things and it like it really applied and so i i it's really something that i i found a lot of passion in so um and i started working hard and I realized like look this i'm not a kid anymore no one's going to take care of me anymore so I've got to turn it around. So that was kind of a watershed moment. And I also talked to, um, it's like the Dean and uh, some other of my dad's friends who tried to do like a little intervention for me. And so it all turned around and, uh, thankfully. So, wow. So was that like, uh, was that just one conversation? Like everybody kind of getting like the intervention? No, no, no. no separately. Thing, yeah. Like there's like, Oh, my friend. And I was, a, I was a kind of a shy kid. Um, and how old are you so at this point? What 40, year are you? Oh, uh, that was, I was 19. 19. Okay. Yeah. So I think after my sophomore year, that's pretty self-aware for 19, I would say. Kind of. I mean, also, like, so, you know, high school graduation was not a big deal. Co- you know, college graduation, it's just something that I just expected to happen. Like, we didn't, like, my parents would have never celebrated high school graduation because, like, I basically would have gotten kicked out of the house had I not graduated <laughs> or something. So it was just sort of this thing that I just, just assumed I could keep doing the least amount. And Georgia Tech is very difficult. And, I believe you. Yeah, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And I was like, I can't not graduate i can't not succeed at this so you know you just turn that corner so uh, you know I, I had dinners and lunches with some of my dad's associates and and um and i talked to my dad was really good friends with the dean so we had a little talk and um that was that and then i i think i'd never got to see again like for the rest I just of, turned the corner yeah 
Oh, I did. I did one, but it was. It was. We can get to that later. <laughs> all right. All right. So, what when you changed your major and you were into this and realized that this was something cool for you? Uh, did you know what you wanted to do with that then, or did you? What were the What are the options? Uh, well, back then, I think there were still stockbrokers uh, that were, you know, as a, a whole bunch of stockbrokers. Now they've kind of consolidated into like brokers that do a lot more uh, people, but uh, a lot more customers, I guess. But um, I, I, you know, investment banking, something like that. Um, that's kind of what I had envisioned because I had a minor in finance as well. Um, but I didn't, you know, I didn't really know. I just, uh, my goal was to graduate at that point, I guess. And you did? I did. <laughs> Make, like, barely. So that's the, actually, uh, we can get to that story. So. Yeah, tell me the, it was barely. So one of the, the questions was like, what is my biggest failure? And I remember, so my hardest economics class, uh, I was doing okay in, and it was one of those where people would stand up in the, it was a fairly big class. People would stand up in, before the professor came in and was asking, like, does anybody know what's going on in this class at all whatsoever? <laughs> <laughs> and there would be like, uh, you know, a lot of shrugged shoulders. And, uh, and so I did okay. Um, I, I was doing all right in the tests. And then uh, when you're, it's your senior year, you can opt to not take the final exam because you just, if you had two exams previously, you just get the grade and because you're graduating. Um, Love that. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I don't have to do this. And then with like, a few weeks ago, he's like, well, how do you want to handle this final exam? And I said, um, well, you know, I, you know, I don't have to take it. Right. And he's like, well, I don't want you to just like skate by. Cause I guess at, at this, I had a, well, I don't want to say I had a little bit of a reputation of also still trying to skate by, but I was doing better <laughs> skate enough to get B's and A's. Uh, but, um, he's like, I want you to research three economic papers, published papers and write an essay on, how they relate to each other. And so I was like, Oh God, okay. I really don't, I hate writing papers. I really don't want to do this. And, um, I just sort of put it off and procrastinated. And then with a few days to go, I was just like, I called him and said, like, I, I just can't do this. Like I looked up all these papers. I was like, I, this isn't, I just can't do this. And so he's like, all right, well, you know, so I got an, I got failed that class. Right. Because I basically didn't take the final exam. Right. But there's a, a thing in the, I don't know if it's across the board in Georgia Tech. If you fail one class in your graduating semester, you have an option to retake the final. And so thankfully I studied, and Christine tell you, I studied all night. Like I basically learned the whole course overnight. And this is one of the most proud, so it's a failure, but it's one of my most proud. Again, my memory is so bad now, I could never pull this off again. Right. Studied the entire book and I was like, oh, that's what he was talking about there. And I think I, 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 I aced the test in the morning, I didn't. I didn't sleep at all. I remember I was at my uh, at Christina's now my wife's Christina's uh, mom's house, just studying, putting coffee down, studying, 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 and and graduated. So that was like, I mean, barely. Oh and I, and I had no idea that it was the policy that I could take the test ever. So well, that's such a horrible feeling to be like having to, knowing worst. you have to stay up all night, knowing you have to learn all this thing, and the knowing worst. there's so much pressure on you. I know. Golly. Oh, it was horrible. It's like those dreams where you like walk into a class and you haven't, you know, you have a test and you just that pit in your stomach. So I, uh, I went to Georgia, which was not nearly as challenging as Georgia Tech, or it probably is as challenging if you were going to be challenged. Right. I was not going to be challenged. <laughs> uh, so we had one class. You didn't have to show up for class. You just took the final and, you know, that was your grade. I right. Mean, that's not what you should do, but right. that was the policy. Right. And so I would run my junior year. I think I was like, you know, fuck it. Let's just see what happens. Uh, it didn't happen very. It didn't turn out very well. I was the same thing like last, the last night before. Like I've not been to class. Oh, it's I hardly awful. Even find, it was just like 
And of course, you're just like, what are you doing? Like, what, where did I think this was like a, where did I think I could pull this off? And of course, I got an F. Right. And if you'd have told me like in high school, I'm sure the same with you. Like, like yeah, you're going to fail a class in college. I would have been like, like, what, like, what drugs am I on? Right, exactly. And, and I wasn't, unfortunately. Um, well, this is congrats. That's pretty cool. You pulled that off, <laughs> I, man. Yeah, it was lucky. I mean, well played. I sir. could never do it again. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you do after graduation? Did you uh, did you like first of all? Did you like Atlanta? Did you like tech? Yeah, I did. Uh, well, you know, if I could go back, I would probably not have gone to tech. I'm really happy I met Christina uh, and and got married. But if I would have met her somewhere else, I would have rather gone to like UNC or Duke or something, just because. Georgia Tech, there's so much work, and it's all guys, very few women. Yeah, so let's let's talk about the dating scene in Tech, and obviously it's, you met your wife there. How did, how I did got you meet her? really <laughs> lucky. I got really lucky. So you just get beaten down as a guy, right? I was already kind of shy and stuff, and I didn't, you know, uh, and you just get beaten down. You just, like, you just get rejection, and you just don't even go ask because, like, oh, that's a pretty girl. She wouldn't be interested in me. And then the girls all think, just are just kit. Do whatever, do no wrong, do whatever yeah. they want. And then you go to like another college and girls will just throw themselves at you. And I just like, I don't even know what to do, right? This is like unknown territory for me. But, um, you know, I mean, not everyone would say they had the same experience at tech, but I mean, if I went to UNC or Duke or something, I think I'd have a, like the social scene would be a lot better. Right. And, uh, but, uh, so I, how, did you, how did you and your wife meet? I got really lucky. So she is a Swedish citizen born here. Uh, lived to, lived every summer in Sweden and was in college in Sweden. And uh, she had just come back to the United States. So she didn't have that altered sort of sense of reality. Where, like, <laughs> yeah. she, and so, I mean, I immediately, I was like, I'm going to ask this. I'm actually, I think she's beautiful. I'm going to ask her out immediately. And she was really smart. I was like, I'm going to ask her out immediately. And she was kind of hesitant, and I was like, like "Are we, we going to do this or not?" Because I don't want to miss my chance. And uh, and we did go out, uh, and uh, and we were inseparable since. No like, way, yeah, that's that awesome. That was '99, so 20 years. Oh, that's very very cool. Yeah, really lucky again. That's probably like the, my dad reminds me. I'm like the lucky. I mean, that was the luckiest thing ever. Now, uh, you brought, she's uh, part Swedish. Uh, what's your ethnicity? I'm curious. So my dad is Chinese. Um, he was born in Chongqing and moved to Nanking. Uh, and then the Japanese are invaded and there was a communist revolution. So he had to flee with his, uh, so my grandfather was the youngest general in Chiang Kai-shek in the Republican army. So they were wow. the ones fighting Mao Zedong and the communists. They were, they lost, unfortunately. <laughs> So they fled to Shanghai and then from Shanghai took a boat to Taiwan. So he grew up in Taipei. Uh, and my mom is, uh, my brother just took that 23 and me. I'm trying to remember. So my mom, so I'm a quarter German. And then there's like Irish, English, Scandinavian, and Dutch on her side, pretty much. Okay. That's where I. So a lot going on. Yeah. Kind of a mutt, I guess. Was, uh, was it ever an issue growing up in the South? I, you know, I like to say no, not really. I went the school I went to, or is it still now? I don't even know. Oh no, I like it's. I, I mean, not that this is one way. I honestly like when I, um, you know, I'm looking out through my eyes. I don't even know what race I am. Like right. I, I don't even see it. You know, so I, I just, just, I'm pretty adaptable. I feel like I can fit in any. You know, like I don't really identify. You wouldn't say yeah. You identify as like if I wrote just, it down, someone asked, I'd say I'm Asian, right? Like, but like in in my personal day to day, I don't even think about it. Yeah. Like I have to remind myself. Right. It's weird. 
No, I, I mean, I get it because, uh, you know, I'm part Cherokee and I, I've done the 23 and me and it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a mutt completely yeah. also, but I'm also a member of this, you know, federally recognized tribe. Right. And so I, I, you know, but I wasn't raised that way. Right. You know, so it was, I, 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 I get what you're talking right, about. Right. Those things. I, I didn't, I, you know, my, you know, cause back when, um, I was growing up, it, they, immigrants wanted their kids to sort of, you know, assimilate, assimilate. Exactly. And so he never spoke Chinese to us. I mean, I pick up a little bit here and there, but there was no Chinese culture. I mean, we were totally brought up with American culture. So, you know, even for dinners and cooking, you know, yeah, like every, I mean, he cooked a little bit, but, it, but, um, there wasn't that like extended family and, and, in and this is an int- interesting issue now with, with our kids and, and, um, my, uh, uh, like their grandparents is in Chinese culture. The elders are absolutely number one. Like they eat first, they, you know, whatever they want that that's kind of, they dictate the terms of how day to day, like if when you're ready to eat and everything and Americans, it's kids are first 100%. It's not even, you know, and that is so true. Yeah. And so it creates some problems with us. And I, and you know, for me, I see both sides, but you know, sometimes it's like when, when we had, when Stellan was an infant and had a nurse, like we were ready to go to meet some people for dinner and he got started crying and had to eat. And, and my parents were like upset. My, I should say parents, my, my um, dad and stepmom were upset that it was going to make us late. And I was like, we're not on your schedule, right? Like my son needs to eat. We're going right. to wait. And they, they like line and they were like, no, you know, now if, we, if this is the case, we have to leave 15 minutes earlier than 15 minutes early. So that in case this happens, and I was like, this oh, is that's just fascinating. Yeah. It's like, it's so funny. That's I, so know, interesting. Yeah, I just accepted, and I was like, "What are you talking about?" You know, like, yeah. it's ridiculous. But uh, it ended up, you know, it ended up being okay. My dad kind of knows, and 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 it it ends up being, you know, it's it's not too much of an issue. But right, uh, but it's just an interesting kind of thing to see that contrast of completely, contrast of how, completely. Yeah. What did uh, so? Where'd you go after tech? So I stayed here, um, and uh, I got a job at um, a place that was called, at the time, Southern Company Energy Marketing. So they had just deregulated power and the transmission lines. Um, <clears throat> and it was kind of like the way I liken it to. So regulation is, people were wondering, so power was spiking. Like, it was really expensive. I don't remember in the California energy crisis. That was like 2000, 2001, 2002. It was like holding a rubber band but the regulation is the hand holding it. So it's still fine and there's no danger. But as soon as they let go, right, it swung massively to the other side and power prices spiked and people started building generation and all, you know, new power plants and things. And then, and then now we're in a glut. And so like it went the other way. So, so deregulation worked. It just took a while. But at the time it was just absolutely like insane because power prices were crazy. We had generation and, um, I started as just a scheduler. I started kind of entry level on the front office. Was this the job? Let me just back pause for a second. Yeah. Is uh, when you were interviewed? So how did you even get the interview? Like where did this company come I, to your I mind? I was in or? the I was in um, the business fraternity at Tech. Okay. Um, uh, and uh, someone who had graduated got a job there. Okay. And uh, he was a scheduler, and then so uh, scheduling is basically the term and the cash traders are all trading power at all these different hubs. Um, and it's a little different with commodities because there's someone, so so uh, like Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch say they buy orange juice contract and then they sell an orange juice contract, but they're not producing orange juice, right? So someone way up the line is making the orange juice, right? So there's farmer A um, 
who could be like Coke Enterprises or so, you know um, Conagra. I don't know something like that that sells the orange juice. And then they sell it to this person who sells it, this person who sells it, this person who sells it, Merrill Lynch who sells it to this person who sells it. And then finally there's um, like Florida Grown or something who buys it, like a big food who buys it. And so you need to schedule this chain of ownership all the way through for each one. They all have to end up booking out. And Merrill Lynch may sell it to JP Morgan who sells it back to Merrill Lynch. And then you just cancel that. Like then that just, that's an easy book out. So schedulers organize these long chains for all the deliverables. And that's what I did. So I basically... We had all these buys and all these sells, and you're literally calling upstream and downstream and finding those chains. So for us, there's a generator. Occasionally, most of them book out, right? So we sell to Enron, Enron sells to us, and we just book it out. <clears throat> but some, there's a generator that generates it, and then it goes through Morgan Stanley, blah, 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 and then to us, and then on and on to Enron, and then finally someone is using it. And so we would have to, everything would have to find it, have a path for the next day. Um, and energy's a little different because it's a deliverable product over a time period, right? There's not like just, here's some power, right? right. It's, uh, it's eight hour, or 16 hours, excuse me, of 50 megawatts delivered constantly. So it's megawatt hours, 800 total megawatt hours of 50 megawatts per instantaneous time through those 16 hours. So, And then on the off time, when it wasn't the scheduling period, we would trade. <clears throat> so back then, we had what was called real-time trading, which was all these different entities <clears throat> and now they're all kind of conglomerated into large like power pools. But at the time, like Carolina Power and Light, Southern Company, Durham, Duke Energy, and um, Synergy, Ameren, you know, ComEd, all these places. And some would need power and some wouldn't. Some would have excess generation. And you would literally call the entire country worth of power plants and try to find people that had excess energy. You'd get their, their offer, you know, say that it was 19 and someone over here needs power and they're willing to pay 25 and then you calculate the cost of transmission and if you can get it there and you make some money then you it's an it's it's kind of like arbitrage but there's some risk involved <clears throat> because like you might not get the transmission and uh, but is this appealing is this is this a fun it, job it was, fun. It was like it a puzzle could it be was, yeah it was really cool especially when and, and it's really cool and then there's a monetary reward right so it's 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 a little bit of a gambling dopamine response or like uh like uh gold mining or something where you know like you're digging in this grid every hour and it refreshed every hour so this is kind of it's uh is this high pressure? I mean, is this is like this was a little kind of all going on at once, and you have by the end of the day it has to be done. Or no, this was a little not really high pressure. This was more fun because you're getting out there digging in, and if you don't make any, you, you're not losing money. You can't lose money in this unless you really screw something up. So it's okay. it's mostly just digging in, try to extract as much money out of the system as you can. Um, and I had a knack for it, and I I kind of made a name for myself there. And so what made you have a knack for it? What do you mean by that? I guess the drive because you didn't have to do it. You could just do easy ones like one, you know, one um, control area just to a neighboring control area and make like fifty cents a megawatt and just be done with it. But I was always trying to find these crazy, you know, Texas is its own entity and trying to get it into Texas because Texas is always really expensive. And if you can get, <clears throat> they convert AC to DC to get into Texas and then back to AC on the other side. So there's these DC connectors that have a finite amount of space, and if you can get some, you know, on that. It's a, you can make a ton of money. So I, that was kind of what I would always like to do. And, th- and my last name's Ty, and it's a DC Ty, and they, that was my nickname was DC Ty. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, but uh, so uh, I, I guess I just liked it, and I, I yeah. and and um, so I, I also get that kind of gambling, like 
mining kind there's of some competitive well. district, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah, for sure. And some like yeah, because there's also like a yeah, like, there's like ten other companies doing what we're doing, right? And you just got to be hungrier than them and faster, right? So um, anyway, so I did that. Uh, so I trying to run, so eventually I moved to the full time desk doing that full time. So before it was only at night and in the weekends that we were doing that, and the rest were scheduling. Oh wow! Yeah, and so I moved over there. I think after a year or two. Um, and then I did that for a couple of years and I finally got moved up to actual like trading. Like, so when you're on CNBC and you see those people with all the, the seven, six monitors and got phones in both the, that's, I did that for maybe like, I did that for a while and that was super stressful. And I don't want to say I was actually that good at it, but cause I had too much of this gambling, uh, um, you know, the, the best traders are just steely and just like, just do not show any emotion, no emotion yeah right? you don't things in dig in on your tra- exactly and if you're just like completely dispassionate about selling your position or buying you know starting if you're wrong you just get out and you know some people are just like i know i'm right you know you can say you know you're right all the way to just you know you know you can stand and the, the tide's coming in and i'm like i'm right and then like you know then the tide comes in and washes you away you know you got it you, you got to know when to run so sounds like almost a, a lesson in like defeating cognitive biases and absolutely you get to see it kind of it, firsthand it's called talking your book right you when someone asks you what you think that you talk your book right you're like i'm long so i think power is going to go up and i will convince you why i you know why that power is going to go up but um that was super stressful uh, i had not, i would have nightmares every weekend really because well, yeah, so I'd put on big position, right, for like the next week or something. So I was called what's called a cash trader. So I would trade everything up to the next month. So if it's July, I'm trading the rest of July and all of August. And then the term traders go further than that. Um, and uh, I would have nightmares. So I'd have a big position the next week, and I'd have a nightmare Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. I would have nightmares every night about my position running against me. I never had these like great dreams of my position like making <laughs> no, millions no, of, of dollars. No, no, no. It was always the other way. I swear my hair started falling out. I started turning gray. Well, I didn't really say. I started turning gray, but it's probably that happened anyway. But definitely, I, my hair was falling out. I was so stressed all the time. So you don't do that now. So how many years did you do that, and, and what happened? So I did that through. So I started at, at it became Mirant eventually. I started in 2000, either 2000, 2001. I can't remember exactly. But then I ended up in 2011. So we merged with a company in 2010 or 2009 or 10. And the last few years... I was flying back and forth. I was living here, but I was working out of a, I basically lived in a hotel and was working uh, Monday through Friday in Houston. Yeah. And it's just flying nonstop. And I was training up their desk basically. So, um, so I had enough of that and that's why I, I, qu- <laughs> yeah. I quit. And was it just the flight or was it also good? Did you enjoy the training part of it or like um, teaching? No. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to get too down, too much down that rabbit hole, but the company we merged wasn't like the most savvy and it was, uh, they were, they kind of acted as a regulated company. They, um, you know, for us, we're always just trying to extract as much value out of it uh, as possible. And, um, they kind of were like, am I going to get paid more if I make more money? And I was like, kind of in a bonus, but like, you know, this is our job to try to extract as much money. And just kept running into that wall over and over Yeah. because eventually at that point, everything had been pooled. And if you have this generation in the pool and the price goes up, you know, the, the pool will call you to tell you to turn on your generation. But even though the, if, you know, say it costs $80 to turn on your combustion turbine, power prices are $200, right? It's a no-brainer. You need to turn it on. 
and they wouldn't unless they got called. And I was just like, you know, it's, <laughs> yeah, you right, know, okay. I don't know the math here, but you know, $120 per megawatt is a lot and you can turn it on and just make free, you know, but are you married at this point? <clears throat> Uh, yes. Oh, no, I got, mar- <clears throat> yes, I got married in 2007. Okay. So not only are you working a job kind of beating your head against the wall, you're flying to Houston and you're away from your new wife. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah. So when did you know what you wanted to do next? I thought I was going to retire, honestly, like, like a semi-retirement, just watch the kids. Uh, Christina had a lot at this point had started a lobbying firm and she was pretty successful and I thought I could just stay at home. Uh, watch the kids because Stellan was born in July of 2011 and I made it about six months and I was just like I can't not it wasn't watching the kid I love hanging out with Stellan it was just not working not getting not you know not getting up first thing in the morning and going and doing so a little directionless or am I putting words in your mouth no a little bit a little bit like you know, you just, uh, you know, as people kind of like in high school and college, you just always assume you're going to be successful. Right. And then you find yourself in this sort of treading water and time is not on your side. Right. So I'm finding myself getting older. I haven't achieved like this amazing success that I thought, you know, I I would have, I mean, I did, I I don't want to downplay Like I did very well with that other company and, uh, but I, I didn't feel like necessarily very fulfilled by it all. And then you just see yourself treading water and like, you're just still getting closer and close, you know, to the finish. Like you're just still time is, is again, time is just not on your side. And so I said, I've got to do something at least in the meantime. So. Oh, you and I, we both have children and I've felt, I understand exactly what you're talking about there. What, what do you think you would tell your children if they're in that kind of moment? Or if they're they're feeling, it's so funny this whole like yeah because just if you're you just presume it's all going to work out pretty damn well right, right? yeah <laughs> and I think then that's when it, everybody and like, then when it kind of even if it does but it doesn't feel like it is or you're comparing yourself to others who are doing much better like it's just it is this horrible kind of like what the fuck are we doing one thing I so uh, to segue into what I was doing next it's almost that thing it's like you're never it's never enough like even mm. if you were making millions of dollars you see that next guy who's got his private jet I mean that's not me obviously but um, you uh, there's uh, there's you're never satisfied I, I don't th- unless you inherited like a, a ton of money and I know some of those people that you know are very successful and don't really feel like they need to but I, it's just ne- it's just never enough and I, I feel like well I think part of it has to do with the fa- and go ahead I'm sorry no no, no I, you know I, I just think everyone just assumes like yeah you know it's kind of that not to disparage millennials but it's that millennial mentality is like you're special you no one like you you're the you're the only player in this game right like and things are going to work out for you, right? That's kind of like the mentality that's, and, and, and it, without the work put in, you know, it, it, it doesn't necessarily happen. So yeah, I think that's, that's a part of it. And I think part of it too is that at that age, or you haven't really taken the time to define exactly what success would be for you. And so it's this, nebulous thing so you're just taking in what society has told you is success or what you've been around or your parents or whoever you know has influenced you and but that may not be what you want your definition of success to be exactly and it but you're looking around and you're like yeah. well this this isn't working right and it could be in anything like you could you know you could be a musician and you're never unless you're the greatest in the world and um it can be money monetary yeah i it's it's uh it is it's that nebulous thing of 
so what is the goal? Where is your, what is everyone's personal goal? And, right. and um, so I was, I was very much treading water. And, and even then I, so um, I had, so at the end of uh, my career at Mirant, you know, people were, what do you spend your money on? What are these things that you get into? And um, I'd always kind of liked wine, but I'd always kind of like kept it, uh, you know, at arm's length. And cause it, it was almost, I, I like to, I like to, as you were talking about all these hobbies, I like to really dive in and master like these things. Like, so you were asking me what I did in uh, some of the things I, I did in high school. Like I loved fish. I kept a lot of aquariums. Um, and, uh, how much is a lot of aquariums? Uh, it, well, but in college I had like, Oh my gosh, like 12 or so aquariums. Shut and, up. Uh, really? Yeah, like That's a ton tons, of work. Tons, oh, it is. That's what got me. It's like, it's all these water changes. And it and smells. I kept, yeah, I kept these discus fish, which are like super hard to keep. Uh, you have to clean the water like every couple of days and stuff. Tell me, like, tell me two random interesting things about aquariums and, and fish that that I don't know. Uh, well, I was really this is sort of random. I was really into what they're called cichlids. So, um, like, I think tilapia is like a type of cichlid. So, um, they're all really good parents. So, um, they actually, you know, so most tetras and random fish will just like lay eggs and have to, and they'll eat them immediately like <laughs> but cichlids actually like defend their babies and some like actually like defend them in their mouths oh, like, wow. they'll like take them up and hold them in case there's uh danger and so i really liked breeding the fish and, yeah. and i don't know if there's something about it like creating life and doing all this stuff uh um so that was the most fun part for me. I don't know if that's like a, a fact that yeah, that's <laughs> the mouth breeding. I is guarantee you, nobody knew that. Yeah, the mouth breeding is cool. <laughs> I know, I yeah. didn't know that. And there's a really interesting one. There's like a type of catfish that will um, lay its eggs around a mouth breeder, and I don't know exactly how it happens, but it's like a catfish. And so the mouth breeder takes all the the eggs up, but there the catfish's eggs hatch first. So it hatches first, and then it starts eating all the other eggs and all the other. Far- babies as they start hatching and the the cichlid is like you know b- bringing it up as it's its own and then eventually like the catfish swim out like and all the eggs and fish are gone oh that's crazy yeah mother nature is crazy it's cruel <laughs> that's it's cruel it's like the there's like a cuckoo that does it too or something that like knocks the egg out and lays its own and then it leaves the yeah the unknowing parents that raise its, kid, its babies so. so was the aquarium and the fishes was that the first kind of thing that you can think of that were like I'm into this and I'm diving yeah full that in? And I was I was always really into nature and science so we I did a lot of orchids too my mom got me into that and so I didn't quite go into it too crazy as I did later uh, in life but um just I like I like plants and nature and so I had a lot of orchids but just you know not too many not as many as I had with the uh the uh aquariums but yeah it was a little bit of a weird thing to do how do you know when you're done with one of these when the water changes and like all the <laughs> yeah. work you're like this is just too much i'm not the it's like marie Kondo or whatever it's like is this fine am i getting joy from this <laughs> right, right, right. And I just, so i think i donated all my fish and 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 got rid of my tanks and stuff but uh anyway this is all circles back to the wine thing well yeah but like this is a cool <laughs> pattern in your life i think yeah yeah, so I had I've been resisting, and finally I went to Napa with a friend who later was a business partner, kind of with some real estate and stuff, and and uh, I just got hooked. We went to Napa, tried all these wines, and um, and it was almost kind of the thing to do. You may you know you do well, and then you're like, oh, you start collecting wine. So it does. It is pretty, yeah. Especially I guess still now even, but I feel like even ten or fifteen years ago, that was really 
like the next obvious thing right right that you did right and uh and it was a lot cheaper back then i think everybody always says that it was a lot cheaper back then now it's like crazy expensive but um so i got hooked and i started buying all this wine what did you like about it um i so i really like as i said digging into new like things and new hobbies and 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 the amount of information with wine and where it comes from and the different winemaking techniques and the different varieties and grapes and and then it changes every year right there's a new vintage and you got to remember like austrian uh you know gruner veltling or something you know it's like you you can never be a master of it all uh and so it was i i really like learning new things and and kind of learning new information and, and it was that was like crack for me just like there's no amount of information that i can possibly you know I, it's just endless amount of information right. I can take in so i had done that while i had collected a bunch of wine and so of course the winemakers come into atlanta and you go to these dinners and i kept meeting the same guy his name was john shalota and uh we became friends and we had dim sum after i had quit the other job and this was maybe eight months after and and i said you know i just die and not not working and he said and i didn't really want to go back into corporate right then. And he said, you're going to work for me, you know, as a wine distributor, distributor and, and, and sales. And so I said, why not? Um, and at first I was kind of working on like the really hard ones to get to, uh, going to dinner and trying to meet the, the what do you mean by buyers. really hard ones to get to ones that like weren't who? doing ones that weren't doing business with us. Give Some, me a, um, the cliff cliffiest notes version of the, uh, of like your end of the wine business or what you're trying to do. So, so all the restaurants all have to, so we're a three tier system. So Which is, I hate, I hate tier systems. Yeah, I know it's so bad and it's such an inefficiency. Protectionism. Exactly. It's such an inefficiency that it makes so much money that it can lobby enough to that. It'll never get changed even though it's so out antiquated and outdated. Um, so I like, so tower wasn't doing a lot of business with us and they're a massive company. You know, they they sell a ton of wine. Um, and some of the restaurants like fourth and swift and things. So I would go to these restaurants. I'd eat at fourth and swift, spend a ton of money and be like, Hey, can you, can we have a meeting or whatever? And they'd always say, sure, sure. Just give me. And then never, you know, just ghost you on the email. So that was my job for about six months. But then the person who had the best territory moved to another company. And John asked me if I wanted to take over and I was kind of not sure if I wanted. And, and then I talked to somebody who just said, why are you even doing this? If you're not going to, take the best accounts and actually do it for real. And I said, okay, yeah. So, so huh, I wonder, uh, yeah, I don't know. That's, that's what, what do you think about that question now? It, it's, I mean, it seems like an obvious notion at the time, you know, it's only the way you phrased it. There was only one answer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, why what do I really want to sit here and struggle and not sell anything and, and not really commit to doing it. Right. And then I was like, why would I do that? Right. That's not, helping anybody I'm spending as much money as I'm making right going out to eat and stuff so I did that and I um, so like the big accounts like Murphy's and you know Turban Licks and Chops and Bones and the kind of places that buy just tremendous amount of wine um, and I did really well I, I um, worked really hard at it I had really good relations and then that's what I found I, I feel like sales is probably what I should be doing and like in the entire time um, cause it's all about rapport and cause why, like wine is so subjective. You could taste eight wines and depending on who's selling them, you know, I could like, so if we're doing a wine tasting, I'd be like, Oh, do you taste the blackberry and the, the, I don't know, like bruised 
while I'm in this and be like, yeah, 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 I think I, I take, I mean, literally I could do these things and I've always wanted to it's do it. It's only half bruised. Yeah, exactly. I kind of want to do this social experiment where I go and I just talk out of my ass and just see how many people are like, yeah, I mean, I would never do that because I don't, I have a really hard time, like uncomfortable making people like look bad or whatever. But I, you know, I really would want to do that and I bet I could, everyone would just go oh, right I'm along. Sure. Yeah. It's so subjective. So, t- um, if somebody doesn't know a lot about wine and they want to learn, is there any books that you would recommend or so, places to look? Or Yeah, there's some good books. Uh, the Wine Bible is kind of the Bible. of. Um, it's a really thick and big, uh, but um, but uh, the best way to do it would be go to your closest fine wine shop. Don't, I mean, and I, I hate to say this, but don't go to, um, what's the big one? Wine, uh, shoot. Um, there's the, like the superstores. The oh, like the what's the oh I my don't god know, in the suburbs. The uh, yeah, that one. Lee. What's the name of it? Yeah. All right. Anyways, yeah, the, because one, they're paid to sell the stuff that they direct import. So like the, they kind of bypass the. They do go through a distributor, but the distributor gets like a quarter or something. Um, and the salespeople there have to sell those wines. They cannot sell a wine that goes through a distributor. So I mean, you they need can. like an independent local right wine in, store, a fine wine shop. Someone that will look out for you. Total you, wine. Total wine, right. <laughs> don't shop it. I mean, you can, I, I hate to despair total wine. I'm not sure why I work so hard to <laughs> yeah. bring up something that we <laughs> right. don't want people to go right. to, but you're welcome. I mean, you can go to total wine if you already know what you're doing, and, and, and uh, but I wouldn't go for recommendations there because they will not. They will try to sell the specific wines that they're told to, but right. a, um, a fine wine shop, you'll pay a little bit of a premium, maybe like 5%, 10%, but you'll, what, you'll get it back, right? So you... So what I started out was I bought, you just joined the wine club and you get a six whites and six reds. And it was really exciting because it's almost, you're just learning this new stuff and any wine I really liked, we would keep the bottle. And so I would take, you know, take pictures or I can't remember, I think I'd write down the names and then I would give them to the shop owner. And it was um, um, Highland Fine Wine in Virginia, in Morningside. And then we started, then he knows kind of the wines that I like uh, and I remember the first time I bought a case of wine, I thought I was like so cool. <laughs> like, <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> and it was like some twelve dollar like crap wine, but it was like yeah, I, but it was like a case. Yeah, and I was like, like, man, I'm so highfalutin. This was gonna be our house pour. Yeah, exa- exactly. Oh, I remember, it. and uh, oh, it's so funny. And um, well, that's awesome. Yeah, though. that's a cool feeling. It is. It's like I made it. I bought. It. I spent one hundred and forty four dollars on a case <laughs> of wine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, but yeah. So he. So then he knew exactly what the kind of wines I like and he could kind of curate like uh, not a seller but he could kind of curate like the wines that I should try and then you know 12 becomes 15 15 becomes yeah. 20 and then 20 becomes you know 40 and six, and then eventually you just work your way up and then now you know um, everything's super expensive but um, well tell me so I, I think a, a lot of people have been in the situation where they are going to a dinner party they are tasked with bringing a couple of bottles of wine. Maybe they don't know a lot about wine, but maybe the people they're going to dinner with do. Like, so what, you know, help, help, help a man out Ooh. who's sitting there looking at the wine going like, well, I, I've heard of this, but if I've heard of it, then it's probably not good. Exactly. Well, it's so, not necessarily not good, or, but yeah. You know, there's, and I know there's an answer that is strictly taste. but There's also an answer that probably taste in social mores. Right. Is that a word, mores? Yeah. All right. Um, uh, help a brother out. Yeah. So one, you could go with the wine store 
and go to that person and say and exactly, just say what exactly you need. that. And she, yeah, they will find the coolest like esoteric wine, like uh, like a Mount Etna in Sicily or something with a. Uh, um, God, my uh, narrow mascalese or something like some interesting wine um because a lot of times if you do that and you bring and uh, I, I hate disparaging wines but say like mayomi or something which everybody loves right um that's it's there's not a lot of thought put into it right right you know, that's stacked to the ceiling at costco and 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 for those out there mayomi the reason it's so good is because it's loaded with sugar Loaded with sugar, it's got so much. Oh, sugar that's in it. interesting. All the most like famous, I don't, I don't, I don't love it. Yeah, uh, Mayomi came with all these wines that are really famous here are just because it's this one. This they is taste good because they're sweet. Very that- sweet. Yeah, lots of sugar in them, um, and the, the really, really good wines taste sweet, but actually aren't. It's a fruit sweetness, and the actual residual residual sugar is really low, and those are the really good ones. Um, but I, you know, I struggle with that too because I have a lot of friends in Napa, and most of my wines that I know that are good are in Napa, and they drink a lot of cool esoteric wines like Northern Rhone, and Burgundy, and uh, and it's always a challenge to try to bring a wine that's like going to yeah. be interesting to them. So I find the same thing. So, you know, I try to find something crazy to bring. What's your go-to bottle to drink at home on a Tuesday night with the dinner? I mean, as as lame as it is, it, it depends. If we're drinking, like eating something heavier, it's just you know a cab or a Meritage or some, some sort of red blend from California uh, or Pinot. But my jam is Northern Rhone. I love Syrah, um, and I really like randomly. I really like Austrian. Um, I like Gruners, and I like uh, a lot of their reds, like Saint Laurent and um, Blaufränkisch and Zeigelt. Rant, these are totally like if you wanted to impress somebody, bring in like bring a high end Zygel or something like that, or Blaufrankish, and that would that would they would definitely take note. Um, but uh, so t- you were into wine before you started working with the wine, right? Right. But when you started working with it, did you exponentially go further diving in? For sure, because then you're you are now friends with the inner circle, like inner circle of Napa people because they're all coming over here. So the winemakers and winery owners, you know, you've got their cell phone. Like, so literally you can just, they're selling, they're trying to, they're working with me. They come into Atlanta. I drive them around to visit accounts and then they are selling. And how do they pick you versus another? They are locked into a distributor, right? Okay. So they, so say you're scarecrow, which is like, just got voted like the greatest wine of in the world. Um, we had Scarecrow, so not that they would ever come to Atlanta, but uh, let's do another example. Like Realm. Realm, I mean, they're just printing 100-point wines, um, and that's a Napa wine. Um, and Juan Mercado comes in to try to sell it, and he's like a superstar, right? Like he is just – he is the most charismatic person you'll ever meet. He is just the coolest guy. And so Juan and I are friends. Like I'm literally driving him around, um, and you get you – know, to be really good friends. They take you out to dinner afterwards and you know, and then I have everybody's cell phone and I can text them and keep, catch up with them. And uh, he's also like very generous too. Um, but that's kind of how you, you just take it up to the next level. And then you find yourself, the more wine you drink, then it just, you get less impressed with less, you know, you, and, and, and it's interesting. Like who's, so the one thing I, I say is like, who's to say what wine is better? Right, it's it's your palate. So I'm not going to say what wine is best for your palate. So I do a lot of blind tastings, and people get like really embarrassed when they like the nine dollar wine. It's like, no, that's great. That's like, joy. That's I, like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're not breaking the bank. Think like, of the money you're saving over right, the long run. Exactly, and it's like, and I'm not going to tell you what you like, right? right? And so it's funny because do I like these finer wines because I was told that that's what good wine is, 
or did I naturally gravitate there because it is intrinsically better? Yeah. Right. It's a really interesting story. Like say I told all my life that like sweet wine and no tannin is the best. Right. And that's, you know, typically typical of like lesser expensive wines. Would I have, you know, like it's really interesting how, how it works. I mean, I guess in, in some sense, like on your palate, it is really pleasing to have like this perfectly crafted wine and everything. So I, I like to think that, yeah, well, it's got to be a combination, yeah, right? Yeah, it probably is. Because there's so like, it's not like you can just isolate your brain to be like, I am only focused on like the taste or the body right. or something like that. Right. You've, you've got all the other associations. So subjective. Did, did making it into where like it was a commodity type situation for you to where you're like, you know, trying to make money on this, did that diminish? Did that affect your love of it in any way? Did it increase it, decrease it? or? It, started increase and then after and after a while you've just, like they just all they're all so good there's like a so robert parker is kind of the critic that made its name for himself and he ended up getting getting a little older so he really like these huge bold sweet less tannic wines um and you just get a little burned down on that now we've kind of the pendulum's kind of swung back and now they're a little bit more balanced and higher acid and less obvious fruit up front um, and so, but eventually like people have that formula down and a lot of the wines taste very similar. So for me, it's kind of these, these wines that have the more complexity and like kind of harmonious, like drinking multiple wines at once. Like sca- the Scarecrow I was talking about that 2007 Scarecrow is like an eth- ethereal wine. I mean, it's like drinking three wines at once. Um, 89 Aubryon, like these is just like benchmark wines. Um, but they the wines that you end up tasting over and i want to say like realm is not one of the realm is awesome like some of the i don't want to <laughs> say yeah. like, but a lot of the wines like in that fifty hundred dollar range they all are very similar and the market is just flooded with them so eventually you kind of get like i like i was able to buy everything at 40 percent off so i was able to fill out my cellar really cheaply um but then like my body honestly like i got really bad heartburn you know, as you get older, you can't rebound after drinking like three glasses of wine with dinner anymore. Just thinking about red wine right now is, is giving totally. me a little bit of heartburn. Totally. And so I was like, my body's telling me something. So while I used to have like almost a bottle of wine with Christina and stuff too, you know, but I drink like three and she'd drink like one and a half glasses. Um, I like, I can't imagine doing that anymore. <laughs> and it, for me, it was also, I was, you know, like I would take a bath and drink like a bunch, you know, try some new wine. I would have dinner and drink, you know, I was always trying to learn by tasting completely. Yeah. yeah. But eventually you kind of get the feeling of it. And, um, and then your body is just too many hard nights of, of, of that, I'm of drinking sure. and wine, especially. Yeah. Wine. is just really gets me. It's like that heartburn thing. But I will say one thing that wine has done is I have a group of wine friends that um you know you, you have that group of friends that you text and they're sending random texts and it is the coolest group of guys and there are a couple like i, I hesitate these are like captain of indi- captains of industry <laughs> right, i right, mean right, there are right. a couple like some billy badasses big time <laughs> that i would have never gotten to know or never right. meet and it, what you're talking about like where is success like i look at these guys i mean they're like insane i mean like off the charts successful and even they are probably tr- still trying to build it you know themselves and um, and they're also like the hardest working people I know, but it's like, there's, it's, it's, it's a, they're a really cool group of guys and we get together a lot and this is sort of a random aside, but it just sort of goes back to that. When is it enough? And I look at these guys, I mean, they're just like, you know, one's the CEO of a couple of huge companies and another was, you know, and I don't know, but I obviously I, I'm not going to get to that level, but 
I, I think everybody has the, the never the goal is never reached, right? Yeah, there's like, always there's yeah. always somebody above. Yeah, so that's kind of it. Gave me a lot of perspective being friends with those guys. So what did you what did you learn from? And I've forgotten the gentleman's name. I apologize, but the guy who's a rock star, the most charismatic person. Oh, Juan Mercado. So what did you what did you learn from Juan? Seeing him go into different restaurants or seeing him do his thing. That you know that it's it, it, honestly a lot of it is sales. That he you know he he is part of the brand. You know, um, you just want to hang out with him you know, people like to gravitate to him, you know, want to hang out with him. And, and he's not, he's really humble too. Like he doesn't go out there and say, you know, you need to buy realm because it's like the greatest wine. He's like, look, we make wine and it's really good. And I want you to, sh- I want to share it with you. And you almost feel uncool if you don't buy it. And I, I don't, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, you right. know, like, I don't know, like he doesn't do, he doesn't put it that well, way. You're, you've disappointed society and your mom. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <if> you don't. <laughs> That's a, honestly, that's a really funny way. I've never, I just, that just sort of blurted that out, but that's like, you're honestly uncool if you don't buy that wine. I mean, literally, that's how I would feel if I was buying it on the other side of wine. Right. Is this something, and we're jumping a little bit ahead, like, is this something so that you've learned to do for Honey Next Door? Mm, no. I, yeah. I mean, no, not really. Well, kind of. I mean, more, it's like, if, if you're going to buy honey, you should buy mine, right? That's kind of how I, you know, because I, I've laid it all out for you. I, like, it's local. It's as organic as it can be, right? Like that kind of stuff. Like, why wouldn't you buy? Unless the price, right? Obviously, everyone's got their own supply demand curve, right? So right. That, that's one thing. But I guess a little bit of it. I don't want to be like you are not cool. If you don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but on, but creating that atmosphere to where you know they are, you know, so they are realizing that they would be, you know, not cool if they were. Yeah, they be fooled not to buy the honey. I, yeah, I'm just absolutely. curious because it sounds like you had a vivid example of. Of someone, you know, because you're representing your brand. Right. I mean, that's, I don't know. I think that's kind of cool that you got to see him and get to do that. Well, I'm glad we had this talk because now it's like, <laughs> like, you're like, right, really should be doing that. That, Yeah, totally. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh, so you're not selling wine anymore, right. correct? So, so what happened there? I started, so the way I got in, so I actually started the honey like back in 2000. Oh man, I was going to bring some 2004 vintage honey. It tastes like molasses or sorghum now it's pitch black really yeah because it honey darkens after i forgot i meant to do that but i was in such a rush but um so i was really stressed back in mirant when i was commodity trading and christina's mom remarried a guy john mcclatchy and his dad marvin kept bees forever and they have a big property in buckhead and that's where this one comes from oh cool and uh he said, I think you should keep bees. And he knew because I was kind of, I was always in, 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 like into nature and science. Like I love natural science and I love biology and all that stuff when I took classes. And so I started it and a lot of people see bees and, so right, let me go back. So like you see, you watch an aquarium, right? And it actually has a, it, your blood pressure drops if you look at an aquarium. It's very soothing and it's a medical fact. I mean. Like petting a cat. Yeah, exactly. Heart rate slows and your blood pressure goes down. So 90% of the people see bees and the opposite happens. (laughs) Right. And for me, when I got into them, it was like a science project I got to dig into anytime I wanted. Like I can, there's like this whole colony of super organism that I can dig into and see. And I really am in a Zen moment when I'm just surrounded by bees. Not when they're like trying to, because there's some days where they just completely leave you alone when like there's a lot of nectar out there and it's sunny and it's 70 degrees. They could not care less what you're doing. They totally ignore you. But there's this hum, <clears throat> and they're flying around you. I, I'm, I mean, 
I completely the, the aquarium. You effect. just kind of feel kind of zen like. Yeah. So so he so he said you should do this and as a stress reliever. So that's what I would do. I would do the beekeeping on the weekends, and I had you know like four or so hives, and then I, I you know expanded them to maybe I think I had maybe like fifteen or something. Uh, oh, random fact! I took them up to the mountains to make the, the sourwood. Where this comes from, it goes grows in the Appalachians. So that same family. Uh, the McClatchy's have uh, property up in North Georgia. And so I put them out there and I had an electric fence. And uh, this was 2007 when it was the big drought where we were like praying for rain and stuff. Okay. Um, with Sonny Purdue. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> do you mean you and Sonny were together yeah, holding hands praying totally, for rain? Totally. Cool. Uh, and, um, and I was trying to make sourwood up there. And uh, we had an electric fence, but it kept getting lightning strikes. And then now I realize it was lightning strikes through the um, distribution system, like through the AC power, the side, because it was plugged in. And had I had just a, like a surge protector on between the plug and the, the outlet. That would have been enough to protect yeah, it? exactly. Right. However, uh, lightning lessons, kept lessons, lessons yeah, we learn. Exactly. Or, or you can just do a, um, a solar one. Uh, that's what everyone does now. But anyway, so it went out on a Friday and my mother-in-law called me and said, hey, you know, lightning struck it. You know, do you need to do anything? I said, no, I'll, I'll be there Saturday morning, so I'll just fix it when I get there. Bears that night went and just demolished everything. Like, all, I mean, honestly, like a tornado went through. It was so heartbreaking. I mean, there's just a few bees flying around, like what happened? Right. I mean, everything is just, I probably in retrospect. The bears are like, buffet. Yeah, exactly. Right. They eat the honey. They eat the larvae. I mean, it's, and they were starving. I mean, I, I saw a bunch of bears um, walking around, like when I had to walk uh, to and from like I, the gate up to where they got, the, the hives were. And I saw bears all the time. And, and they looked like really skinny dogs. They were just nothing. Oh, wow. Yeah. The drought, there was no, no huckleberry or like wild blueberries for them. And, Probably no, I don't know, no grubs or whatever. But anyway, so maybe <laughs> I kept the bear family alive is what I'm hoping. But um, just totally demolished, and I just was like, burn it all. You know, I just I was so upset. You're just done, right? Yeah, and I mean, I probably could have gone and tried to find the queen, put them back together, do my best. That, but I mean, it was just total wreck. And so I, I quit for a while, and and then started back up. I can't remember in the early teens or something. Do you remember so, why you started back up? It's probably that kind of treading water area where I was like time period of my life where I was like, you know, I, I, I need some more hobbies. I was riding bikes for a lot of that too, uh, racing. So that kind of took a lot of my time. I think it was right when I stopped racing and I had more time because ra- when you're racing bikes, it's like 15 hours a week. Of See, riding. this is this is why I love you, man. So I got, I got like 10 things that I could like pursue, like go down like rabbit holes with, I, with and I totally forgot. things. We haven't done volleyball. We haven't we haven't done. Yeah. We're not going to get to a ton of those. Yeah. So we might have to do a round two because I would have I have some I have some racing questions, but let's continue with okay. let's continue with the bees. All right. So I, uh, I, so anyway, so I started the bees up again and then I think it was like 15 or 16. Um, I, cause I used to just sell it all at the company. Like I would just bring it and then people would buy it and I would be out for the whole year. And I was like, I'm going to make a lot and I'm going to sell it on next door, the app. So I made, I so know. what, like, but walk me through that. Cause that's not a, that's not necessarily like, that's a choice. Right. Like it can be like I have these couple of hives. Right. I'm enjoying it. Like I get it. Like my family can get some honey. Yeah, exactly. Like what and I can made give it you? To friends. That's a good question. I I think I just had a really good year. I actually the first year I was like I don't. I think I just had a good year where I had a lot of honey. I think that's what it was. And I had maybe like two or three buckets, five gallon buckets worth. And I said, oh, I'll just sell the rest on next door. It was gone in a day. 
Yeah. Sold out in a day. And I said, next year, oh my gosh. I, and it was a good amount of money. I think I was selling it for five bucks back in the, the 2000, the aughts or whatever. And then, um, and I think I sold it for 10 bucks or something or $8. And I mean, I sold out instantly. I was like, oh, all right, next year, seven, 2017, I'm going to make shitloads of money. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I think I made like eight buckets or something. I sold it in a couple weeks. So how much, like how many, how many jars are in a bucket and, and tell people what size a jar okay. is. So a jar, so tip, so honey has to be sold by weight. That's a weird thing. So one ounce of honey, so one, one fluid ounce, like a water, like a, if you have like a one ounce thing. So these are two ounces of okay. two fluid ounce jars. There's three ounces of honey in it. So it's one and a half times. So, um, so it's sold in one pound, two pounds. It has to be sold by weight. And so a bucket is uh, five gallons, and a gallon is 12 pounds of honey. Okay. So there's 60, gal- 60 pounds. So 60 jars of what you would get is in a bucket. Okay. So I guess I sold about, uh, of, uh, I think I had eight. So I, what is that? A hundred and something <laughs> yeah. thousand jars. I was a jars. drama major, yeah. man. I can't, uh, you've lost me already. Uh, uh the so ninety six so I, I sold uh, nine hundred and sixty jars. It I, th- I think it was fifteen and sixteen or sixteen seven. I can't, I'm trying to remember the dates, but the years. But it sold in like two weeks. And you're still just kind of doing it, f- yeah, for fun, right? I was still full time wine business. And then I started thinking, I was like, you know what? If I could do this and actually make a ton more, if I could do this in every major neighborhood, because I started adding up the money, I was like, this is not an insignificant amount of money, right? Um, I think it was like 2,500 bucks or something. Um, I was like, dang, that's not bad. If I can do this in Inman Park, Buckhead, Brookhaven, Decatur, you know, now I have 13 different places. Like this is actually can be, there's a company here. Right. And Christina, she, you know, she knows my personality and she likes to rein me in when I get a little crazy on something. <laughs> to her credit, she's like, yeah, I think you're right. And she's, I mean, I, the one thing I can say, she is, super smart she is the smartest person i know by far and for her so she she gave me the green light she's like yeah i think like you're this right. makes sense yeah i think you're right and i mean because we would have a little table out front literally just selling and people would come and my son's so cute she he loves helping he there would be nobody on the street and he's still screaming honey for sale I'm like, oh my god, oh, this is so, so cute. I'm like, I'm looking down the road both sides. Like, there's not a single person in sight. Not yet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but it was so funny. We would do this thing on next door. We would sell it. And I remember there was one time, and people were like, bananas for it. Uh, we had an oh, oh, we we had an au pair that was leaving, and so we took her out to dinner. And I said, told people on Sunday that I said I'm, I'm going to be out because we had the little table, and they would be waiting for the table to to come buy the honey. Uh, we wouldn't be home until seven and uh, it was a goodbye dinner. So, you know, we were, you know, had some hugs and cry, you know, and we were going to miss her and all this stuff. So we ended up getting home at like seven fifteen, and there was a crowd of people on our lawn. No kidding. No joke. And it was the funniest thing because then we couldn't find a parking spot because um, our van is typically in our driveway. And so we have to park on the street and we, there was nothing. And then, so she lets me out so I can do it, but then I don't have the key and our door is locked. So there's this whole crowd of people. I was like, man, this is like, this is, this is picture like it's a wonderful life. You're like, you walk in all the folks and they just want honey. And stuff yeah, but they were back. a little upset. They're like, yeah. <laughs> they're, like yeah. they're standing, well, a little bit. They're just standing waiting for like 15 minutes on some random dude's lawn, like right. waiting, hoping they could just quickly transact and get their honey and go. So but. what, what do you, what, why? Why that reaction? Do you think? 
Well, and I'll so, just think, say, uh, I had the same reaction the first time I tried it. It was like, holy shit, I've never had anything like this. Yeah, it doesn't it, taste like well what we grew up thinking was you know the right kind of honey. There's a few. It reasons. tastes so much more complicated yeah, and fascinating for sure. and delicious for sure. So two two reasons. So first, when I started in '04. People are like beekeeping. That was like weird, right? Like nobody was beekeeping back then. I mean, there were a few people, but that was kind of a like a weird thing to do. And people are like, oh, am I gonna get sung? Are you getting? Do you get sung all the time? Oh, weird. And then now it's like bees, awesome. Like bees are the crazy. You know, save the bee. Ever since like it dominated yeah, the right? news. Yeah, you know? I hear you. So that was one thing. People like just appreciated local honey, and and half the people buy it because they want to support just a local beekeeper, and half of them buy it because um, they understand that not only honey just being local right you're not shipping things from across the country different kind of like you know we can down the rabbit hole of chinese honey that is illegally imported so like if you're at one of the big box stores a lot of that honey is illegally imported from china and it's got like lead in it and that honey the honey and the bear is not my friend yeah and it's like half rice syrup and malt syrup and anyway so um so yeah, they were kind of feverish about it, and I and and so I, I started out with um, hives in my house, and then I put hives in Decatur, and then I had hives in, in Buckhead, I think, and um, and then I had enough. I finally had enough. Like oh, so that time where I was like, I'm gonna make a ton. I had like eight. Bu- it still sold out in a couple of weeks, and I was like, okay, so we're gonna do this this next year. I'm gonna make a lot, lot. I mean, I, I think I put like 20 hives in my backyard, and I put I think tw- 10 or 12 in Decatur, um, and then I actually had enough to sell for a while. And um, I don't know if I had, I think I had incorporated, I finally incorporated and decided to do it. I was still working wine. Um, But then I started doing these farmer's markets in the afternoon. um, And I only had one honey to sell. And it was from Decatur, because I had sold out of everything I had in Candler Park. Um, And then I, that, so honey is, honey, all the honey is made from, I want to say like February, but really like March through May. Um, So, that fall and in the spring I put hives and I think it's the Inman Park Morningside at my I, my old house where I now have my honey processing facility Virginia Highlands I partnered with um, Murphy's Restaurant to put them on some property he has like right next to the restaurant um, Brookhaven at a friend's house what else did I have I, anyway uh, Westside I partnered with an urban farm uh, in Westside and so then that June I had all this honey from everywhere uh, and that kind of is how everything started um, but but to get back to your point, why it tastes different. So almost because of having so many different hot honeys, I have to keep, even like frame by frame, I have to keep the honey separate when I take it in and I, I extract it separately. So there's a radial extractor. You, The frames are kind of like long um, rectangular bits of honeycomb and you have to slice off the ends and then you put it in a radial extractor and it slings it out but I have to do it all separately. So all the bucket honey has to be done at once. And then I put it in buckets and I stack it up and that's all I'll have for the year. And then the next one will be Candler park and I'll stack that up. And I had tons. So I have tons of Candler park, tons of Inman park, tons of Oakhurst and the rest I have a little bit less of. I can't. So most beekeepers, they keep it in a huge heated tank so that they can pump it. And then it's easier to bottle when it's warm. Okay. Um, It's easier to move it around. Uh, and it doesn't crystallize. So it just stays in a tank that's like 120 degrees. And what happens is it slowly caramelizes and you get this kind of ubiquitous honey flavor that mm. you sort of know. And it's like if you were to have like distill it down to a flavor, that's honey flavor, right? And we don't ever heat it. So if it crystallizes for us, 
what normal beaker would do. Well, one, we have to keep it separate. So nothing is just sitting in a tank like baking. Um, but it's sitting in buckets, right? And I keep my honey house pretty warm, but a hive is between like 92 and 95 degrees. And so we keep it at like 80 something. And so the warmer it is, the less likely the honey is going to crystallize. Um, but even if it does, you could nuke it at like 120 and overnight it'll liquefy. But I don't want to ever get it over hive temperature. To keep, so what happens if it, you never heat it up like that? You, all these nuances and the florality and all the acidity comes through and you lose, I mean, you still have that honey flip, but you lose that and it's more nuanced, like a fine wine. Kind yeah, of. I couldn't believe, I, I mean, I felt like, I felt like if I'd have looked at it, I would have seen like little bitty flower yeah, petals, exactly. like tiny it's little crazy, flowers right? all throughout it, you know, which you don't see, but yeah. like you taste them and you smell them. Absolutely. And so it's, it's the heat is the enemy. And also, I mean, obviously, a lot of people don't do this, so it's, a, it's good. They, they don't, you don't, just don't filter the honey. So the ones in the big box stores do filter because um, you don't want crystallized honey sitting on there. So pollen acts like as a nucleation point. This is another tangent. So honey at room temperature wants to crystallize. It is slightly and super crystallized, saturated. It gets solid? Right. And okay. it gets gritty and kind of chunky. Okay. Um, and that is just the glucose in the honey that just wants to basically crystallize out of it. And the pollen is a nucleation point, kind of like how rain forms. There's little dust that goes through the clouds and, and droplets form around the, the, the dust. The pollen grains start, the crystals start on the pollen grains and then they grow from there. So if you filtered all the pollen out, it would take much, much longer for it to um, crystallize. So we have all the pollen in there. So obviously our buckets are crystallizing so when we want to decrystallize our honey, it takes a long time. We have to, we, I put it at 100 degrees. So basically right at like where hive temperature would be, where you're not caramelizing anything, you're not changing any flavor. And it takes a bunch of days to do that. But the end result is like, you can even see like the different colors and so, you know, and, and honey darkens as it, as it gets heated. And so all these would basically turn into this color. Okay. Like it's a darker color. It's more of an amber color. Yeah, it's and, almost like a, the difference between like a like an American beer and a right. and an ale, right? Exactly. Like our, or, you know. Yeah. Um, so those are p- kind of like the tenets of what like we do is is all the, the local, um, the different areas trying to be local and um, and just take me take me through and we'll try to do this briefly and I'll try not to ask a billion like questions during. I could talk bees for hours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so okay, let's say so. Let's say it's it's harvesting season, right? Which is coming up, right? June. It's June, right? Okay, actually. So let's take in, let's say what's going on in August. Try to keep them alive. So and what what do you like? They would normally like in the wild. They would do like they. So we're like so up in the north, where there's loads of ground flowers. The bees are crushing it in August. And here in the South, it's really interesting. So basically everything stops producing nectar June 1st. And there's nothing up until asters and goldenrods in September. So it's kind of a downtime. They throttle their hive. It gets really small numbers. Um, The only thing that really produces nectar nectar are um, invasives and exotics. So things that people like. So crepe myrtles are, are all summer long but they the don't nectar produce. is what the bees eat yes okay. pollen and nectar are the two things that they eat okay. um loads of pollen and crepe myrtle but there's no nectar so um but things like porcelain berry kudzu um I'm trying to think of all the invasives that produce uh nectar uh there's a few others like golden rain trees 
uh, they do produce in the summer. So we're lucky in an urban environment where we have those things that the bees can use. But if you're out in the country, there's literally nothing. So um, they kind of rely on the honey they have. They throttle, like, so what happens is people think the queen rules the hive. The nurses that surround her rule the hive. So they know how much is coming in and they throttle her back. They will feed her less so she produces less eggs. So they just keep a small. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so they keep a really small brood nest and a smaller population in July and August and September. And then they ramp it back up a little bit when goldenrod and asters. Goldenrod's the kind of, it looks like a little, kind of like a little rocket of yellow that shoots out um, and it's like everywhere in um, September, October. It produces uh, a lot of nectar and asters everywhere. And then, but in August, it's really they're treading water. They're, you're just, you're, again, rabbit hole. There's these things called varroa mites, and that's what's kind of killing, one of the factors that's killing the bees. They vector a lot of diseases, and the economic threshold is a mite per bee number. So in the spring, the bees are, you know, killing it. There's so many bees, and they're growing, and the mites are growing too, but the bees are outpacing the mites. But when they start throttling down, uh, the bee population drops, so the mites are still growing. So then the mite per bee number like exponentially grows. And so you have to do treatments in the summer. Um, how do you treat that? So there's a, there's some miticides that you can use. Um, we try to do all organic. Um, there's miticides you can use like Amitraz that, which is called Apivar. Um, you can use oxalic acid, which is not, um, certified organic because there's no, because oxalic acid you can just get anywhere and there's a vaporizer you use and it vaporizes in the hive and there's no commercial entity that will take the time to get it certified organic. But formic acid, it's kind of partner is less easy to apply. So it comes in a application and that is certified organic. So it's called Mitoway quick strips and that's what we use. It's a kind of a flash treatment. How do you do it? It's, it's, it's so funny thing is, if you see someone put, like, if you see like Apivar put in, it's a, it's a commercial miticide. The bees don't even notice it's there. Formic, which is the organic version, the bees hate. So if you, it's one of the most unsavory things when you get a whiff of it. It's like the acid in your lung. I mean, it's you just shiver for a bit. It's so potent. Um, like in what direction? Like, can you compare it to something that I'd almost know, as if you had some really strong vinegar. And you let it sit for a while and then you lifted the lid and like inhaled it all at once. Okay. Yeah. But like maybe two or three times as strong. It, it really like burn. It feels so bad when you inhale it. Anyway, you put one of those things right in the middle of the hive and the bees freak out. They hate it. But it, it's, it's like and they're medicine, breathing though. it and that's how it, uh, or they eat it or it, how does it, they're not in? sure how it works on the mite, but it, they think it burns the foot pad off of the mite that grabs onto the, the bees so that they can no longer buy and then they starve and die. Okay. We think. But it definitely does some action on them. And oh, and so honey is very acidic. So when I was saying all these organic acids, people are like, oh my God, why are you putting all these acids in? Um, oxalic and formic acids are, are the primary acids that are found in honey already. Okay. So um, acid has super low pH. That's one of the reasons it's antiseptic, that and high osmotic pressure. But um we're going down all these different rabbit holes. No, this is good. I dig so, this. So, but let's keep going, and then I want to know what happens, like in November. Okay. So, um, so August. So, so I personally do treatment in July, September, and November because if you're out in the country, you don't have to treat as much because the way. So most host parasites um, don't try to kill the host, but the way varroa. Um, exists is it, it, it the way it procreates is it wants to kill the high i mean 
doesn't want to kill the hive. But because of the way bees are, the most virulent form of mites are the ones that succeed the most because they kill the hive the fastest. And when they kill the hive, one of the things that bees do is they can they have really good sense of smell. They can smell a hive and they go inspect it. And if there's nothing there, they go in and just steal all the honey, right? Because honey is the essence of what keeps them alive in the winter time. So that's like they, the drive for honey is very high. So they go and steal all the honey. The mites know this. The mites start latching on to all the bees that are coming and it, it transmits from hive to hive. So as bees dives, it's almost like one of those epidemic heat maps. You know, you see like with zombie outbreaks kind of, yeah. that's how you kind of want to envision it. Like this area where the, all these hives are dying, have high mite loads, all the hives around it start taking on those mite loads and then they start breeding mites. And then are there, are there, are there easily or readily detectable signs that your hive has mites? Um, not until it's too late, unless you do okay. these, these <laughs> testing things, uh, like spotty brute. Like when you see a frame of brute it should be solid. And when you start seeing when holes see in it and stuff, um, like, so when you look at the side of, um, of a frame, the brood is the baby larva and the capped are when they're pupating. So they cap them with a permeable wax covering so that they can still breathe. And that's when they kind of undergo their metamorphosis into a bee from a larva. And if, as Varroa are infecting these, they're a vector for a lot of viruses. So as they vector all these viruses, like the um, 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 K-wing, like not K-wing, uh, like paralysis and, uh, shoot, I'm forgetting all these. Uh, anyway, there's a bunch of viruses. Um, the larva will die as they pupate. And so they'll open that up and remove that larva. So as it gets worse and worse, there's more larva that are re- removed. And so what normally is a smooth capping group of cappings of, of pupating larva, pupating pupa, uh, they, uh, are, there's, there's holes that exist where they're taking out these infected. And you can see those holes and know you have a problem, but then you're, it's almost too late at that point. So what, uh, do, do the mites are they just they're killing the hive or are they also like are they affecting the taste of the honey as well no, they don't affect the taste of the honey they um they don't eat honey they just feed on the fat of the bees okay and the larva so it just means you're out like a hive right but, but then all moving the on bees, to your next one right exactly so that's the problem so in the country you could get away with not treating that much because you don't have all these hives around you that will reinfect you. But in, in the metro area, the pressure is super high. So, you know, I'd say when I started in 2004, if I drew a one mile radius around me, there might've been 10 hives just randomly. Maybe, I mean, that might be being a little generous. There could have been like two to five hives. Maybe now, if I drew a one mile radius, there's probably like 80 hives around. It's so like not just you, but right. just everybody else doing it. Loads well. of them. Yeah. Loads of people. And a lot of them have good intentions, but they don't, some are like, oh, I want to be treatment free, and I'm, I don't want to disparage treatment free. I mean, that's that's a it's a you honorable goal. What? Uh, not treating for mates, just okay. letting the the natural um, defenses and resistances of the bees gotcha uh, um, take care of the mites. And you can kind of hold this like if you had an isolated on an island and has some and it has mites on it, like those bees can kind of fight the latent population of mites that are just always there. But in the city, when there's so many and you're going and robbing and taking the mites back, there's just too much pressure. And so... I feel like there's an anti-vaxxer thing going on And I'm not here. trying to disparage it because it's an honorable goal and it's a goal that we should all strive to. But it, it, it really doesn't work when... Unless everybody did it. So, okay, like if so everybody did it, it, it would work. I gotcha. 
So if you're, are you doing this? How often do you have to in August? How often do you have to treat these? Things? So I treat them in June. Okay. And then the people that don't treat in June, their hives die in August. And then my bees start grabbing their honey and mites, and and then I have to treat again in September. And in September, I need a more of a lengthy treatment because they're constantly coming back in. So then you can use oxalic acid because that's a kind of a, a treatment that you do every five days for a while. And then I do formic again in November just to give them a clean slate for the winter time because they don't leave. And the, and a really interesting thing about bees is they live for about 40 days, but in the winter time they have different physiology. They have more fat and they live uh, up in the North, like in Canada, they can live for five months and they just sit there in this kind of tort like half hibernation. They sit there and all they do is like flex. It's like you're flexing muscles. They flex their wing muscles and it produces, it metabolizes carbs and it produces heat and a lot of water. And so they have to sit there and live like that for all winter long. And if you have like mites sitting there chomping on you for months and you're just sitting there, like it's bad. So that's just like a kind of a clean slate for them. And then I don't need to, even if there are some mites in the spring, they outpace, the bees will outpace them again. So, but if I were in, this, in, in the country in the middle of nowhere, I probably can get away with just once, once a year maybe. So if it's, if it's November or October, like how often are you going visiting the hives? If I am, so another thing that people don't like is, is feeding bees. They, like they think, oh, you're feeding sugar water to these bees. But it's, it's like, you know, the grass isn't growing in the wintertime for a cow. You're not going to just let it starve, right? You give it hay, right, to feed it. Or, um, and I don't do this. So usually on the, the vast majority of the hives, like 90%, you don't have to feed anything, right? But if I make a lot of splits, like I, I take a hive and I split it into three parts and then give new queens or whatever, they need to bulk up quick for the winter. So you will give them some sugar syrup. And they burn through that way before any kind of honey gets made. You know, even all the maple honey uh, nectar they get in February, all that gets burned through. Like they explode in population in March and every last bit of honey, I mean, they're maybe tiny little corners on the frames of honey and they're really like hand to mouth at that point. So just to allay everyone's fears, there's no sugar syrup getting into any honey, like any, any beekeeper that knows what they're doing. Um, so sometimes you have to feed if it's a very weak hive, but typically you don't, you're really just inspecting them, making sure they're queen, right? Um, you don't have to visit them that often. Uh, it's really like now and in July, August, you don't have to inspect them much, but it's July. It's, it's really Jan February through June is a really busy season. July, August is a little bit less and then it's really just getting them buttoned up, make sure they have enough s stores for the winter, um, and making sure you get that mite load down. But um, if I'm making splits, then it's a lot of visits to make sure they have enough food and stuff like that. But it's, it's not too bad. That, that October, November, December season is all selling. I mean, it, it's, it's total craziness. Yeah. Chaos. What, um, let's switch to the business side for a second. Okay. So you did incorporate while you were still selling the wine. Right. When did you, when did you decide and what was your process like for... Um, deciding when to stop selling wine and, and focus more on the bees? Well, so I, Christina and my dad both said, okay, I need, I need to see like projections um, where you think the money, you know, like, cause at this point there was money coming in from these farmers markets. Did you do a business plan? I didn't do a business plan per se, but it was, it, it's, there's not too many nuances to this. That's really like the expenditures are pretty known and the income is fairly known. Um, 
So it was just really like going out and finding new revenue stream, like new customers to buy, like wholesale and stuff. Because I, I have a um, wholesale license. I have a inspected honey processing facility so I can sell to restaurants and stuff legally. Um, and it's the only one in the city or Fulton or DeKalb. Well, so how did you get that? Like, how do you, what's the process for doing that? <laughs> it's really funny because there's none here. So I'm the only <laughs> one. So the inspector, it's a, it's so the, the honey is inspected by the ag department, the department of agriculture. So all the big honey producers are not in Metro Atlanta. They're like, there's, you know, a, a big one that I, I really like, uh, in Douglasville, um, it's called Sweetwater. And then, uh, there's all tons down South and a bunch up North too. Um, so when the ag inspector I was talking to, um, she didn't know exactly what to look for because, so there's a list of one to seven, uh, that the ag, uh, of like, um, of risk factors, I should say. So like if you're doing raw chicken processing, right, you're a seven, right? Like you have re- <laughs> right. refrigeration and they are inspected like nonstop. I was thinking about getting into that. Yeah, yeah you may. Um, but um, honey is the one. It's the least. It doesn't spoil. There's no refrigeration needed. Um, it's just it's just really like insect rodent ingress and contamination, right? So you have to wear like hats and you know all the, just the standard things. But it's a really not a lot. You, you can't have any glass. Obviously, you need washable you know, oil paint, you know, so you can wash the floor and wash everything. So, um, and you need like you know three part restaurant sinks to do all that stuff and uh, different hand washing stations and things. Anyway, so she had to call down to the inspectors down south and that's who I called to to kind of help me out. There's this one girl, I forgot her name, but she really helped me out, kind of lay out what I need. What do I need to be doing? How do I do this right? Right. So so the inspector came and I said, and we kind of had, you know, she said, these are the things you need to do. You know, you can't see any light through any of the doors or the windows that you don't want any ants or like roaches getting in Um, and no glass, you know, so we have plastic lights and everything. So, so I got that's that's pretty much how it's it's a lot easier than than it sounds. Um, it's just a lot of expense. I had to get it retrofit. It was an apartment in, in Morningside uh, that I of a house that we owned that we rented the upstairs. So we retrofitted it, um, and that's what we use now. But it was a kind of an interesting situation where nobody knew exactly what we needed, and even like the inspector in in Atlanta who I guess approves all this like. There was some, un- <laughs> yeah, some unknown. You were the there. guinea pig test right, case, exactly. So, um, so I forget where we were going. With the, well, I, I, with the I, I, I forgot. Also, I think we're. I guess I want to. What I'm interested oh, oh, why, in learning about why did is, I quit the wine? Why did you quit the wine? But it's part of a bigger thing, I guess, of of deciding to, you know, do more and make this in a business. And what I guess, what are your goals and for the business? So I got into I, I, I stopped doing wine when I realized that with all those the budgets and, and projections um, when I realized it, it would be able to, to offset my income from the wine um, and I become somewhat disillusioned with the wine because I wasn't drinking it I wasn't passionate about it anymore and and it would have been I just it literally like my body not feel well so um, so I, I emailed him and I said you know I think it's time to call this I'm gonna focus on the business full time and I and it wasn't really fair to him anyway because I had um, farmers markets from like four o'clock on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, and so I was abbreviating my workday a little bit. And so once I re- so it's really once I realized that, so I really started focusing on festivals and um, and the farmers markets, and that was a pretty good income. I mean, pretty you know the mar- the, the business was doing well, and I hadn't even touched, and I still have barely touched wholesale. I just don't, I haven't had the time because one of the things about what I do is 
beekeeping is almost a full-time job as it is. And then I have to go sell it, which is another full-time job. And then you have to like bottle it again, which is another like part-time job. So like really long days. I, I do have some help now. It helps, but um, I, once you start, so it's really what my goal is now is to get the information out there. Like why people should buy this and not something else. I mean, always any local beekeeper, I, I, it's, if it's not me, support another local beekeeper. It just happens to be that there aren't any like super local ones here. Um, um, in Atlanta, um, if people watched like Netflix, Rotten, there's a series called Rotten on Netflix. Episode one talks about how everything, nearly everything in the big box stores comes from China. So it's, uh, so it's illegal to import China, Chinese honey, but China will export it to Malaysia, to Indonesia, to Ukraine, to Argentina, to all these other places. And then they will re export it from there, change where change the country of origin and it comes here. So you'll see honey from like Ukraine, Argentina, like on the made in that's all Chinese honey. So Chinese honey is half rice syrup and malt syrup, half honey, but they use lead in their barrels. So it's lead tainted, which is bad for adults. It's super, super bad for children. Um, and they use, um, prophylactic antibiotics. They just dump antibiotics in cause they don't want to deal with foul brood and stuff. So it's loaded with antibiotics, loaded with lead, and then half of it's not what you pay for. So if people knew that, no one would be going, like, why is my honey so expensive? Well, it's expensive because I, I, the way I do it is small. It's like it's really hard for me to drive all over the place right. and keep these like distant lots. And when I could just go in the country and have like 50 in one spot or just buy it from China and repackage it and say, oh, it's $7 honey, you know. And I'm, I'm air quoting <laughs> honey and air quotes. On the radio. Yeah. Um, so uh, knowing very little about any of this, it would seem there's a there's a lim- there's a factor, a limiting factor of doing it the right way. Right. Let's call what you're right. doing the right way, the best way. There's other yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. but at some point, where where is where is the law of diminishing returns of like the quality's going down? But because I think I would presume, but maybe not. Like the goal is to produce more, and but maybe the goal is just um, if produce this amazing product for the few people who can get it. I can, or like which direction? What are you thinking at this moment? And I know I can scale up pretty well and keep it pretty much the same. Okay, with with because I can buy. I've already actually just bought another bottling tank. So the more tanks I can get, where I don't have to sit it in there, you know, I can because I have to wait for it to decrystallize because I don't want to nuke it, right? Right. So the more I can do that, the better I can take the plan ahead and so I've got bucket in here. So there really is no limiting factor on that or yeah because your time and and time right and I need to hire some more good people I've got a couple really good guys working for me now but I need I need a beekeeper that knows what they're doing because right now they're more like helping manual labor like beekeeping is really half of it is just carrying heavy shit around all the time. (laughs) Is that true? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) The buckets are 60 pounds each. So you're carrying two buckets. You're like doing those little, uh, what are those called? You know, when people do take the dumbbells and they walk and they, you know, it's it's like naturally happens. And then like, um, a full super of hunting, I think weighs like 90 or I can try to remember like 60 pounds or something. Right. They're really heavy. Um, plus you get that to wear that cool suit. Yeah. Right. The suit. I've, it's so funny. You know, we were, you and I actually had the same, we were talking about this. It's like, you know, you go to like Sweet Auburn Market or you go to these places and there's people in scrubs, you know, they're wearing their like hospital <laughs> right, scrubs yeah. and I'm like, you know, what it like, it's a critical mass of people that need to wear these for it to be accepted to wear your scrubs. And I'm not saying it's not unacceptable to wear your scrubs around, but 
you know, I wear a bee suit all day. Why can't I just wear a bee suit and a Kroger? <laughs> yeah, and like, like, well, duh, well, you took a picture on Instagram, I think, of the... Uh, like of you in the car, like moving some hives. Right? Oh, yeah. you had the beast full. Oh, and a couple regalia of them Yeah, and I just always think it's so fun. I used to just like put my windows up and head down, and now I'm just like <laughs> yeah. windows down. I'm at the light. I'm, I'm a beekeeper. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna own Accept it. Accept it. Yeah, I went into it. It's so funny. I was really I was like, I'm like, time flying. I like, I, I never have enough time in the day, and I was like, I have to get some of these packages out. And I, I was in full, I had just collected a swarm and I was in my full bees, full, same thing. I had this swarm and anytime you collect a swarm, a lot of bees stay on the outside. So I had my bee suit on. I really don't need it on, I guess, because it's very, I mean, it's very unlikely that bees are going to sting me while I'm driving, but still I don't want to get a wreck in case one like pops me in the head or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, so the, I was like, the I, negatives are high. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so I was like, I need to go mail this and I can't be late. So I go, I just full BC, I go in the post office and drop my packages off. <laughs> yeah. And nobody says a word. Nobody I mean, says anything. Nobody says a word. I have like latex gloves on. I mean, I look like a hazmat. <laughs> I look like a guy in a hazmat. Or people always say Breaking Bad, just drop it off. And then I, I mean, I didn't have like the veil on or anything, but right. you know, but the, everything else is there. Still, I'd have had to been like, so. Do I need to like evacuate? <laughs> <laughs> like bees? Like, you know? <laughs> I'm a beekeeper. Yeah. <laughs> hey guys, <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to talk about two procedural things. Also, okay. Um, I want to know because I saw. I saw like there's like you offer to rescue hives, right? So I want to talk about how one does that, and then I want to talk about how you extract the honey and then go through the process of that. But I know I want to be respectful of your time, also. So <laughs> if okay. we can, we'll be brief with both of those, okay. perhaps, if we can. So. Bees in nature, uh, the queen is laying inside the hive, but it's not procreating the species. So every spring, the old queen and half the bees all take off all at once. And they make like a ball, almost like a basketball-sized ball of just solid bees, like on a branch or a fence somewhere. Really? Yeah, it can be really disconcerting to see if you don't know what you're looking at. Yeah, but they are actually, that's the time they're most docile. So anytime someone calls me and sees one, I put my face on it just so people know. Like literally, like a swarming ball of like I'm, you know, because uh, they just don't want to sing. There's no hive to defend. I want to link to that picture if you <laughs> if you've got one of those. Uh, I'll send you one. Um, and so those are so once they're there, then scalpies start looking for a suitable home, like in a hole in a tree or something like that. Um, and then so I will take those and I'll put them in a new hive and take them and put them in an apiary. That's a very short explanation but also sometimes they will get into people's houses um but how do you physically get them you have to like cut it out and i and i actually have stopped doing that just because i don't have the time anymore so i i um i get send them to a friend who who does it but you literally cut a hole and sometimes you do it from the inside on the in the sheetrock and you just have to like put towels on the door and that room is bees flying around inside the house Um, but usually you go outside and you like cut into the siding and then you literally take a knife and, and you just cut frame comb by comb and you rubber band it into empty frames. Like a, it's almost like a picture frame with no glass or backing. It's just like the wood part. And you, you rubber band it in there and then you hopefully get the queen and then you do your best to put them in a new hive. But I mean, you get so, it's, it's really rough work. What's the, uh, like the ratio of success on that? For me, maybe like three out of four, I would get the queen and, okay. and, and they'd survive. Yeah, the other times like the queen just doesn't because you have to vacuum them up. So you do a vacuum where 
it's not high pressure. Um, the pressures, so the the suction is there, but there's a box between the the vacuum part and the suction part where it diffuses the pressure. So they still get sucked in here, but when they hit it, they don't like you know smash into the back of the like wall. So anyway, so you do your best, and sometimes it just doesn't always work out. But um, but yeah, that way because everyone's first uh, instinct is to just spray them. Right, they just try to kill the the hive that's in it, and and it's very hard to do that from the outside to get in. But then they call the exterminator. The exterminator says, "We're not going to kill the honeybees." It's like credit to them; they they don't kill honeybees, and then they will call me or they'll call somebody else, and then then they, and that's what I would do. I go in there and I saw into the side, uh, and then and then extract it. But now, oh, wow. yeah, I don't do that anymore. It's just too. It's you get stung like crazy because you sweat so much that the suit starts sticking to your body, and then they can just sting away. Uh, why? I mean, just because there's no there's no gap. Is that how those work? Well, yeah. It's it's the one I have now is a lighter one that lets air flow through it. So it's just a couple mesh, two mesh sort of fabrics. And if they get matted to your body, the bees can find a way through. Instead yeah. of like the big canvas ones that are really really hot. But what's the worst stinging incident you've had? Uh, I've gotten stung in the face a couple times. Um, uh, but uh, the worst I ever got was. Uh, extracting honey for the first time. I didn't know what I was doing. This was 2004, and it was late at, in the day. And you're supposed to do it middle of the day when all, half the bees are out foraging. But I did it late and dusk, and I must have gotten stung like 50 times, not 50, maybe like 25 times on my leg. And it swole, my ankle was so swollen and the bottom part of my leg. But uh, it was pretty bad. But now, now I've done it so long. Honestly, it doesn't hurt that bad. It's just itches. I don't have a reaction unless I get stung like in the, in the fingers or in the um, face. Um, the reaction is not that bad. It, it, it hurts for just a little bit. It's still uncomfortable, but it more or less feels warm about 15 seconds after I get stung. And then it just itches like crazy. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And you still, you still get that calming kind of uh, thing with the bees? Uh, I do. Not when I'm digging into the no, side. Yeah. The real, yeah. One of the things that I don't like about um, uh, scaling up the way I have is I, that, that sense of awe and that romanticism about going through it like a, like a um, science project is totally gone. I, I don't have time to do that. I have to like look and if I see what I need to see, I move on to the next one. Um, and, you know, when you're putting the lid back on, you know, when you have a few hives, you just brush all the bees. Make sure you don't sit so now. I'm just like, just, yeah, right. <laughs> just a couple of bees get squished. But uh, I do my best. I'm not sitting there like yeah, yeah, mass, yeah. massacre. But not intentionally. Yeah, exactly. But, I, you know, you just do as, as best you can and, and move on to the next one. Okay. Uh, harvest time. Oh, take, right. take me through that. So uh, bees, when they make their nest, like if they're making it in a, a hollow tree like the, in nature, the bottom part would be the brood where they're doing all the larvae, and up above is all honey. They that's where they keep the cap of honey, and some of it's insulating. So in wintertime, it, it hit that it's a lot of thermal mass, so it, it retains a lot of heat from the hive. Um, so we mimic that in our boxes, um, and I use a queen excluder, so the queen can't go through it into the top and start laying into the, where the honey is. Um, so the bees go out and collect. Is that nectar. just a like a how does that work? Uh, it's just a little like the the bees the queen's slightly fatter so, so that's what this is just a size thing like yeah. she can't squeeze through yeah it looks like almost like an air conditioning vent kind of thing but okay. it's bigger uh, and the the worker bees can go through and the drones and queens can't so um, they go out and get nectar which is very liquidy it's very high water content they come back in um, and they paint it into the cells 
Um, and then they kind of use their the cells with the geometric formation. Yeah, the hexagons, and they paint it on the tops and just to get maximum. Isn't uh, it crazy that like they're hexagons like that and they're perfect and they all match up and then and it's amazing? in the dark. They do it in the dark, really, in the pitch black. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's crazy. Um, Nature. I know it's scary, right? Um, and then and then so they cure it. So they so one thing. So when the bees take in the nectar, it goes. It does not. It's not bee vomit. It goes into a second crop. It doesn't go in the digestive <laughs> <Yeah>. system. <laughs> And they add an enzyme called invertase, which converts the polysaccharides into glucose and fructose and some, and, and some other like um, polysaccharides. And, um, and then when they dry it, it has to get below, I think, 19.2%, uh, something like that. And then it becomes honey. What do so, you mean by dry it? So they fan air through it. Where does it come out? Where does, where does like, how do so they, they get the spit it back out. They spit it out. Okay. Yeah. And then they use the proboscis, kind of like if you had using your fingers to make like a soap bubble. They just do that that over and over and over, ah, okay. and it's to the maximum surface area. And the bees are all fanning air through the hive, dry air. And they're doing this because they want to eat this later, right? It's because they don't go dormant in the winter. So, like bumblebees and carpenter, like the queen will dig a hole and just hibernate all through winter, so by herself, like solitary. Oh, really? So they keep the whole hive alive. So they need all this honey as a carbohydrate source. At that point, they're like generators and. The honey is like their gasoline, basically. They just need to keep it going. Um, so once they have inverted it with the enzyme and it dries below 19.2, usually here um, it's humid, so we're a little on the higher range, like 18% or so, they will cap it with an impermeable capping. So once it's all capped, and, and so you'll see this beautiful white capping all in every hive, and it's just like the most beautiful thing you've ever seen. Um, you take the entire box off of honey, with the frames. Um, oh, and we use, um, uh, you brush all the bees off or you can use an air blower or you can use a fume board that like a, is that the smoke that you see? No, the do? smoke, smoke is is, it calms them. So the smoke does, it makes, so if just like swarming, if bees need to leave their hive, it takes honey for them to produce wax. They produce wax in these scales on their stomach and the bottom of their abdomens. So, um, they need to eat honey to do that. So they engorge themselves on honey thinking they may need to leave. So the smoke thinks, smoke makes them think that their hive is about to catch fire, like if there's a, a forest fire, say. So they all engorge on honey, and then if it continued to the fire, it was actually a fire, they would all leave and start anew, and they need that honey to start the wax to build comb somewhere else. So when you do smoke, they immediately forget what you're, they're doing, and they go in and they start drinking honey. And then they engorge on honey. So when a bee sings you, it doesn't like just back its butt into you and sting you. It actually like turns sideways, almost like a C shape, and stings that way. And so when they're engorged on honey, they can't make that shape. So there's so there's three things it does. It one they so they're bending in. They're they're stinging forward. They yes, kind of like okay. sideways into you and forward. Yeah. And then um, oh wow. Um, so they're it, too fat to, to yeah, bend. They're too fat. <laughs> right. They they um, don't it's pay like attention. Me with my shoelaces. <laughs> That would be exactly like the same sort of idea. And it also masks any alarm pheromone that might have been in there. So Okay. Um so this is it, it's actually uh like a cherry almond sort of flavor. Like you know that ubiquitous scent in bathrooms? It's like a cherry almond flavor sometimes hand so anyway, I, I think it's the same stuff. Yeah. Anyway, the bees don't like it, so they will evacuate that area. So then you take those frames, um, and the other thing is so um, most beekeepers use heat to uncap the top. So that impermeable capping has to be sliced off at the ends. Okay. Um, and we use a cold knife. So we use a cold knife and literally saw it off. 
Now, is, are you saying cold knife in like response a to a hot knife, or yeah. is it just is it room no, temperature? Room temperature knife. Right. Gotcha. But most ninety nine percent use a hot knife because you can just, just slide easier. right through. Right. But and it, and it doesn't ruin the honey. I don't want to be saying like it ruins honey, but it does caramelize like a tiny bit of the honey it touches, and I can taste the difference in honey that's been hot knifed or cold knifed. It and does. Is a, and is a hot knife. What's a it's hot really exactly. hot. Like it'll burn you. So it's like it's, it's like ha- plugged in. Yeah, like and a, it's got a thermostat, and it, and you plug it in, and it okay. and it just melts the wax, and you can go right through it. And I'm not trying to like the honey. The character of the honey is still fine. It's got all the pollen. It's still raw, and, and it, but it does caramelize. No, this a is tiny just another bit. little extra step exactly. that you take. Like that one others don't exactly. Yeah. So we use a cold knife, which is really annoying because you sit there, saw it off, um, and the, and then the the wax that falls off, we drain the honey out of that, and then that's what we make the candles out of later is the beeswax that's left. So then you have a bunch of uncapped frames um, that are open on both ends. And the cells aren't, like if you were to bisect a, um, a frame and look at the cells, the hexagonal, they're not 90 degrees out from the middle. They're slightly upturned so that when they're filling with nectar, they don't spill out. Oh, wow. So you can use that to your advantage. When you put it in an extractor, you can radially spin it out. I think it's at like a 20 degree angle or something like that. And so when you spin it around really fast, like a centrifuge, the honey will sling to the, the outside. And then, um, and I have videos of this like on the Instagram and stuff. So cool, you, I'll, it, link, I'll link to yeah, this. Yeah, it, it spins around and then collects on the side and then comes out. And then literally we have just two screens at the bottom and then that, that is what you're eating. I mean, it, it comes out from there. No heat has ever been applied, no filtering. And then, you could literally fill your bottle from there and that's what you're getting here. That's amazing. Yeah. So it's, I try to get it as like close to the source as possible. All right. Well, let's taste some. <laughs> yeah. This will be fun. I want to taste some we're honey. Gonna, we're going to make a mess here. That's all right. All right. So I've got my wet paper towels here to clean up. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. And I'll be taking pictures. What's that? Is there somewhere I can put? <laughs> yeah, actually. Okay. Here we go. All right. Saving it for this part here. Nice. Okay. Chuck this thing in here. Yeah. All right. I feel so legit Beautiful. Now. There you go. Okay. You so get a microphone stand too. Nice. I was jealous. Okay. So we're going to start with Tupelo first. And this comes from Collins, Georgia. Um, and Tupelo, it's the, I'm going to butcher this, Nisa Ogichi or something. It's the, the genus and epithet for the species. It only grows in the... Well, so is that a flower? Or the, or, it's Because the bees are all... What is it? Apis? What is it? Apis mellifera. I looked it up. I was so proud of myself. Nice. <laughs> uh, that's the it. species of the tree. So uh, it only grows in the Apalachicola and Altamaha River Valleys and a little bit in the Savannah River, but not enough for a commercial product in the Savannah River Delta. Um, and people not tried to move this tree to have it other it, places? It, can't, it, it only grows in those areas. Am I too close? No, you're good. Okay. You're good. All right. So this one is so different from any other type of honey. This can be our trash here. Just gonna it. So, yeah. So I'm looking at this. The color is, I mean, this is pretty, pretty light, light color. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, like, again, like, give you, like, a... Uh, like um, put in your plant in your mind what you're tasting but you know to me it's like mm, it's so different and you can have this that you can keep all these so dip away my plan has worked <laughs> um, it's like jasmine flower tangerine zest star anise clove there's a lot of clove in it 
Um, yeah, there's just it's just a lot going on. Yeah, it's, it's so very hard to complex. not. This is going to be frustrating for y'all, maybe, but we'll try to keep it brief. But like, there is. It's just you can just. There's so many little flavors. Yeah. So th- this that is really unique to Tupelo. There's nothing like it. Um, I always heard of Tupelo Honey in the song, the Van Morrison yeah, exactly. song or whatever, but right. I didn't think. I Never, guess I thought it was Tupelo, Mississippi. Yeah, everyone thinks it's Tupelo, Mississippi. So Tupelo, Mississippi is named after the black gum Tupelo, which is grows in Atlanta as well. It grows all in the southeast. Um, but Tupelo honey only comes from that. It's like a little, very tiny area right on the Georgia-Florida border. And so would you – how do you eat honey? Like do you – are you eating it raw? Are you I cooking had, with it or what uh, do you like? – I use, I use it in my coffee. Um, I use the creamed honey for breakfast all the time. Um, I – so I make um, oatmeal for breakfast all the time and use a lot of honey in that. We use honey in uh, granola, honey in, um, in our yogurt, and do you have as much as possible. Do you have different honeys that you prefer in different ways? Uh, like for yeah. like a cream cheese and uh, bagel, and I want to add totally. honey to which honey would you add? To so that? Tupelo, we made granola out of it, and the cool thing about it, it has such a unique taste. You can taste it in the granola, right? If you – it. it completely next level right i mean i like if chefs were using stuff like that i think it could really take it that's it, cool there's so many nuances to it yeah i mean most honeys like i would say all these you wouldn't taste necessarily a difference when you use it in granola but that for sure is there a pellet cleanser people use to when, when tasting uh, honey water, I was I cool, isn't <laughs> yeah. water works well enough well, let's try another one so tupelo yeah so tupelo also never crystallizes no matter how long so if I do, did i just taste the best there is or basically sourwood and tupelo are the best too the thing about sourwood is it just tastes like really really good honey it's like butter and cinnamon and this is a little bit darker yeah slightly darker it tastes like just it's it's just almost just as good as honey can get but that means if someone gets a really good honey crop you can potentially fake it and just say Oh, this is because sour and tupelo sell for a massive premium. Yeah, that kind of tastes. I'm, I'm, I don't have as much of a, let's say complexity. Yeah, like I don't, I'm not tasting more of the individual, but it tastes just delicious. Yeah, there's still a slight, almost like licorice note to it, but it's it's just butter and cinnamon and nutmeg and all these just wonderful. It's really light on the palate too. It's just yeah, that's delicious and. and Unfortunately, nobody produced any sourwood last year, so sourwood is very easy because, like this, this would sourwood is what you were trying to do when you were in North Georgia, right? Exactly. So anyone can just say, "Oh, this is sourwood," you know, and um, and charge twenty dollars a pound for it, but and no one would, you know, right? You really do need to know your beekeeper, right? You right, right. So people are selling sourwood now, and sourwood, honestly, every every beekeeper I've talked to. In the Appalachians, nobody made any, but yet there's still a fair amount of sourwood being sold. So it, you need to take it with a grain of salt. Try it. Don't ever buy it without tasting it. So Tupelo people, I mean, if you knew Tupelo, you would know immediately if it was Tupelo or not, right? And I've gone places that's had crystallized jars of Tupelo, and obviously that's a non-starter there, right? It, it never tu- it never crystallizes. Um, but two, it's like such an obvious flavor. Tell me why again it never crystallizes. So um, fructose to glucose, right? So you have these polysaccharides and, and sucrose and nectar, and then they invert it into glucose and fructose. So high glucose, like ground flowers, dandelions. He- so it's um, heather, um, um, lavender, canola. Those so, all have tons of glucose. So those crystallize really quickly. 
and high fructose, like trees have more fructose to glucose, those tend to not crystallizes quickly and tupelo has such a degree that it never crystallizes so if i'm if i'm trying to be a tupelo honey beekeeper and i've i'm down in apalachicola i like mm-hmm. how do i encourage the bees just to eat those and trees so the only time you can do stuff like this where you have sourwood tupelo orange blossom um fireweed mesquite there's two ways you can do it you can put it on a big monoculture like citrus you can just put it on a massive citrus farm and that's all they'll, they'll work or like blueberries or you know, blackberries and things like that. But sourwood grow. So remember when I told you um, in this area, June 1st, no nectar. Right. So sourwood is the only thing that blooms in this period of time up in the mountains. So it blooms kind of like mid June through July. So it's the only thing that's there. So the bees have no other option other than sourwood. So you know what you're collecting is sourwood. In Tupelo, it's the same thing. In that area, it's kind of both. In that area, that, that's the only thing there that's blooming and it's about it's about in a week or two through the beginning of may that's the only thing that they can visit and you can taste it too so i'm actually going to send this there's a place you can send it so i'm going to send to see what what my percent i mean no, it's never going to be 100 percent, right there's going to be some like daniel right but they around. can analyze it and yeah. tell where it came yeah. that's so cool they add water centrifuge it and count the pollen grains and they they know what all the pollen tastes like and i'm going to do that for all my because i want to know what all the oh that's really cool it. yeah uh the starwood by the way for if you're listening like it doesn't um there's no, I mean, it tastes like beautiful honey. It yeah. There's no buttery and the, the name is not, uh, there's no sourness to it. Yeah, 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 for sure. All right. So, so these are special cases. Right. And now these next three are different hives in different neighborhoods within the city of Atlanta. Correct. So, well, let's, let's just taste them yeah. and then I can ask the questions. Yeah, because they will taste different. They will taste different. I, I, that was my yeah, question. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, I suspected um, they would. Yeah. So the interesting thing about it is um, most every flower in Atlanta produces honey that's very high tone and acidic. What do you mean by high tone? High tone, like a floral, I should say. Just not rich and not super rich. Not a lot of those, um, not a lot of the like dark cinnamony, molasses-y kind of notes. They're, they're all more like flowers and. This is good. Yeah, like almost like citrusy notes to it. Um, but um, tulip poplar is the last thing that blooms, and it is a really dark and rich honey, almost astringent too, um, in a good way. So um, this is the one from your house, right? Yeah, so from my backyard. So I, during swarm season, I was a bad beekeeper. And I went overseas during swarm season. So my hives all made early honey. And they were, like, as I left, they were already putting a ton of honey away. Uh, And then I left, and they swarmed, which diminishes their population. So they don't make honey after that. So this has almost zero tulip poplar in it. um, Because the bees, I came back and the, like, They were were gone, yeah. yeah. And the the tree goes late. Yeah, but I had all the honey still. So, um So it's really the amount of tulip poplar. So this next one has some tulip poplar in it. Okay. Um, And this is from my in-law's place right near Westminster, kind of on West Paces and 75. Cool. A little shout out to John, who I got to meet for another project. Oh, he's just the coolest. That guy's so awesome. Yeah. And it's so funny. He and I, like, we're like kindred spirits, even though he's like, I'm super extroverted he's super introverted we still get along just fabulous so i feel like and i don't know this and my palate's not that great so 
But I think this is the one I had whenever I first had some a mm. couple of years ago. This tastes like that, and it's just has like a dried orange peel note and a little like dried rose petal on the finish. It's really this is one of my favorites. Yeah, golly, yeah. There's just there's just again. <laughs> This is not the best idea for radio, but there's this, tr- trust me, <laughs> trust. you need to go to a farmer's market with him. And I presume this is part of what you're yeah, doing you at a farmer's market. Yeah, absolutely. Explain the difference, but uh, that's fantastic. All right, so the last one we have is Inman Park, and this is a guy, Aaron Schwartz. This is one of the coolest dudes. He was just came up to me when I was doing the next door thing. He found me on next door when I had said, you know, I've got honey for sale. He came and bought it and said, and he is almost, he is almost how it all started because he said, would you like to put hives in my yard? And I said, in him part, that'd be great. And so, Oh wow. This is different. Yeah. So, so interestingly enough, this one is almost all too popular because I, so I tried to prevent swarming on these Candler park hives by taking splits off of them uh, and weakening them so that they can rebuild into their hive and not swarm. Cause they, they sw- tend to swarm when they're out of room. And then those, those hives I put in Inman Park, and they grew and didn't get strong enough to make honey until the very end of the season. So that's all to a poplar. So this one's got that like richer. Mm. So what I'm hearing is there's a lot of. Um, it's just, that's like pure tulip poplar. Honey. That's so good. Yeah. Uh, there's just a lot of happy accidents of when things happen. Right. How much are you just letting nature happen? All of it. Okay. <laughs> like, I'm not trying. To. Well, yeah, I, did, I didn't know if that was like a, a goal or is that's like, obviously we're going to try the, uh, the habanero. So like you right. infuse something with there, but do you have other ideas to do that? Or is it just like, let's just let nature do what it's yeah, doing. Mostly just let, let nature kind of um, go. My Like the Candler Park, Virginia Highlands, Morningside, Druid Hills, and Westside all taste almost identical. They're really similar. Um the Buckhead and Oakhurst got a little tilt poplar, and Inman Park is the outlier. That just, well, I know why. It's because they only produce honey at the very end of the season, which is tulip poplar season. So. And so these, are these all from last year? Yes. So the new stuff will be, um, it'll be all harvested early June. And, and it'll be, all be different, right? It could, it could, be, could be very like this. Not if you get the Candler Park honey one year, it could be very different the next year. So honestly, the tulip pop, that's my hypothesis. Uh, it, you know, I've only got one data point to really know, but yeah. I, I'm assuming it was the timing is why, because that is what, I mean, what I did actually, you know, so the hives going into Inman Park, I'm just assuming that's why, but it'd be really interesting to see because now all the hives have been there the whole time. If this one comes out really light now, or if it stays really dark, like, cause there are tons of tulip poplars around there too. So it could be a little bit of everything. No, um, again, I don't know why I'm, I'm wanting you to manipulate mother nature so much, but like, <laughs> so like, if you thought about like, I'm not sure you have thought about like, I don't know, planting some, something that the bees like, but something that nobody really, they makes honey with. And like, you know, just having like little, it would take a ton. They go, yeah. they, they explore almost, you know, in urban, they maybe go a mile or two and God, my math so bad. So that would be tw- like, right. Two pi, pi R squared. Right. So it'd be four times pi. So like a 12 square mile area I would have to plant to really oh, that, that, that much. Yeah. And if they go five, miles like they do in the country they go a lot farther because urban we have so much stuff like they love holly bushes and there's holly bushes everywhere right um if you were going in the country um that'd be 25 times so that'd be a 75 (laughs) square mile area they have to 
So it's very difficult unless you're on a big monoculture to actually influence too much. Gotcha. Um, that kind of, but I, that's also kind of beautiful. Yeah. I kind of love that. Yeah. So, right, I mean, so this one looks, well, go ahead. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, basically like, so it's your, you know, we live close enough that these guys are visiting your house and getting, you know, nectar from your trees. So. All right. Well, it's, it's fitting that I'm getting to try their honey though. So this one, look, this looks like orange marmalade kind yes. of to me. What is, what's, what happened to this one? So honey in general is super saturated at room temperature. So it slowly, I think that's like from uh, those experiments we did in like seventh grade or <laughs> that's whatever. Where there's leftover material in the beaker is that, or something <laughs> exactly, like that. <laughs> right. so, so like if you, if you put salt in water, it can eventually it will stop digest it'll stop it'll stop uh, uh dissolving the salt but if you boil it it can you can put a lot more salt in it but then as it cools down it becomes super saturated and then really wants to crystallize all the salt out so at room temperature it's slightly super saturated and if you put it in a cabinet in about a year it will crystallize into like just gritty chunky kind of crystals um not like flaky yeah okay. i mean it still tastes good but it's just not super appetizing like the um, the consistency, yeah, consistency, right. Um, so what you can do, and this actually started in Europe because, as I said, ground flowers crystallize really quickly. So they make a ton of canola, um, and heather in uh, England and lavender in France. But this granulate almost immediately within um, a month or two. So if you take that and you grind that down, um until it's like this consistent with really tiny, tiny crystals of honey that are left. And then you add liquid honey to it, mix it up and then drop it down to about 50 degrees. Then it becomes massively super saturated and really wants to shed its crystals. But you've given it like you've seeded it with those tiny crystals. And so it copies that tiny crystal. This is fascinating. Yeah. This is really like, imagine that on like some brioche toast with some butter or something. Yeah. So like it's, um, uh, trying to translate, it almost feels a little bit like the difference, and this is not going to do it justice, but like <laughs> from like, um, you know, a, gla- a tap water to soda water. There's just this like, there's something, yeah. there's a consistency. It hits your of, palate differently. Yeah. It's a difference in texture. It's delicious. Yeah, it hits your palate differently. So, I mean, it, it, and it will stay like this for forever. Like a shelf stable like this, like for, a, you know, millennium. So, um, so yeah, so once it drops, it copies that tiny crystal, and it's it's like it's you can't see on the right, but it's like the consistency of peanut butter almost, and it's nothing uh, yeah, but honey. Really? Yeah, it's yeah. Just, just pure honey in that. There's no difference between this one and like the liquid version of the Oakhurst. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, really cool. Right? <laughs> that is really cool. That's our best seller too. I mean, like so, really? Yeah. So um, we were selling it to some of the Rathman restaurants, like on their cheese plate. So it's really good. Oh my god! Yeah. With Parmesan, it's like change your life good parmesan or like blue cheese that's sweet and savory so what restaurants are you selling to now um now and so how do you pursue those well they've actually are pursuing they came to me uh for a lot of them um but again i haven't had a, a lot of time to go out and do too much of it so murphy's we supply all of their honey um care steak they use this on their cheese plate um local three um, they do, they've used our honey. They're one of our biggest supporters. They've used our honey forever. Uh, Brezza in, uh, Pond City Market. Yeah, I saw it. the article, like in the AJC, Yeah, right? exactly. Then they have a recipe that yeah. they gave. So I'll yeah. link to that too, y'all. And he's one of the first that actually, um, did it too. So a, a big, um, thank you to him, to Andrew at yeah. Brezza. That, and that's a side of the business that you'd really like to expand, but just Yeah, I have not. No one has time yet. I've literally had no one say no yet. 
Honestly, it's weird. I just haven't. I had can't it. believe they would. I mean, honestly, like, yeah, I'm a little expensive for like their, you know, what they would get from Cisco or U.S. Foods or something. So there is some pause there, but right. But with such farm totally, to table and yeah. people wanting to know where their food comes, you'd be like, yeah, it came from right over there. Right, and you can just point. Yeah, like from Bretza to where the hives are, it's half a mile. Yeah, that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, so. Um, there is some, you know, people appreciate, and people start appreciating. And Bressa does like that's their thing. I mean, they they have a sign that's like all their local, you know, yeah. vendors. And and so if you're listening to this and you own a restaurant, you should be contacting Branded <laughs> and getting their honey. Yeah, all the tea, a lot of tea shops like Jaita Che and um, uh, Just Had Honey. Uh, the, they do a lot of. Uh, it's just naturally for a tea company to, to oh, yeah. honey, and they cry. They sell so much. It's it's amazing. All right. So what is this one? So this is organic. Um, habaneros from Rogers Roots and Greens. I hope I don't ruin, ruin the name of the company, but I think it's Roots and Greens. We'll and link to it and we'll correct it if yeah. it's the wrong, uh, wrong one. And they are, I chop them up and I put them in the honey. And this is honey from Morningside, just randomly. Uh, and I infuse it in there for about a month, a month and a half. And like the the hip thing now is to do like the Naga Scorpion or Viper or whatever Carolina Reaper like all these what cool all doing? these what cool sounding peppers <laughs> okay, using those their are peppers? yeah <laughs> ghost peppers and stuff like gangs yeah <laughs> the Naga Vipers you gotta watch out for them man <laughs> you do not cross that no street. I know so it's so funny diving the the plastic spoon into this from dive, from the crystallized it's just yeah it's, it's way liquidier so, so yeah. So it's got a little heat, so I hope you don't mind a little bit of spice. We'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> but um, oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, it's so good. Right? That's so good. I know. Imagine that on barbecue, like at last base on a ribs or a chicken wings. Oh yeah. yeah, fried chicken. If you had like chicken tenders or fried chicken on waffles, just drizzle that on there. It'd be amazing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but habaneros, jalapenos have too much of that pyrazine note, like that green peppery note. Okay. And then the the other super hot peppers don't have any flavor. They're just like ridiculous just heat. heat. Yeah, habaneros have this wonderful citrus fruity note to it. They don't have the cool name. It doesn't sound as cool, but well, they were cool back in the day yeah, before anybody knew hot, about right, a right. scorpion pepper. Right. They that citrusy peppery note, fruity citrusy note works really well with the honey. That is, that is fantastic. Yeah, that is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And it actually, like in in and that works really well with the cheese too. Like um like double and triple creams like breeze and and even cheddars and stuff yeah well even like a like a really strong blue it can yeah. stand up oh any of the that, any of the know? salty yeah that'd be awesome yeah totally uh that's cool so you've been incredibly generous for your time i just have a few more questions sure. and then uh we'll let you get back to the bees um have you ever entered a drag contest <laughs> you've been fed that question <laughs> no, no this is actually this is one of the questions i ask everybody. everyone <laughs> Uh, and are you undefeated I, in said drag contest? Yeah, it's it's random, and that's one of the funniest stories ever. Is uh, so I did one in Australia, and I don't even remember why. I think we just had a lot to drink. How old are you? And like really young. Why are you I was in like Australia? nineteen. My brother had graduated, um, and my dad wanted to send him to Australia for his graduation, and so I got to tag along. I forgot exactly what happened. I forget why we were at some tourist destination. And thankfully there is this woman from um, Britain that was with us and she was like six one. So she had a tight fitting black dress. <laughs> <Yeah>. Actually, <laughs> Brandon's a tall dude. <laughs> and, 
And oh god, I mean, we just had so much to drink. It was so bad. <laughs> and you, we just lit, you know, sitting there doing like the model runway, like the strut. Uh, and yeah, somehow I won, and I forget what I won. I think I won a bunch of champagne or something like that. <laughs> like the thing you needed the least yeah, at the moment, exactly. probably. Um, but the funnier one was um, Christina went to school in Sweden with uh, this girl, Macrina, who lives in Westport on the west side in County Mayo and west side in Ireland. And um, they had, so I got to be good friends with her brothers and her brother's friends, and they're like, yeah, we're doing a drag contest uh, in town. Um, and you should join. You should sign up. But I was staying with her parents, and they were all off in like his apartment, and everything. So I was getting dressed separately. And this time, I went kind of like as an old hag, kind of looking like not. Did they know you were undefeated at this time? No, no. Okay, this so is, sorry. Yeah, it wasn't a story yet because I just had that one kind of random thing I did. But um, so this was like a more of a like legit contest. Like there were, I mean, but so anyway, so they pull out all the like all the her sisters just were having so much fun dressing me up. So I had a big blonde wig and I had all this crazy clothes on and I'm separated from the people that were telling me about it. Right. So I am walking into the city and I see nobody and there, and I'm, and you know, this was before cell phones and I, like there wasn't before that, but we didn't have, I didn't have like a cell phone in right. Ireland. So I go to the place where they are supposed to be and it is just a packed <laughs> with a bunch of Irish guys and I'm walking in fully in drag and I'm I, again like I'm really tall so yeah. like, I'm sticking out with everybody and I'm just like so embarrassed and I'm just standing in the corner like can I just kiss and you're American and you I'm just, yeah like, bloody Americans and uh, and I swear we go to like three different places it's the same thing I'm just like mortified and I think they're just playing a prank on me at this point I mean I literally right and oh, it was so bad and finally because we went to the bar they were supposed to be and no one was there. Yeah. And they said, oh, it doesn't start until like 11. So that's the one I started like trying to chase them down in all these places. Right. And eventually we go back to the original one and then finally they're there. And then there's a drag contest and then I won. <laughs> and I think I had to at that point because what I had been put through. Yeah. Uh, and I remember I got some scotch or something or Irish whiskey as a, a, a winning that one. Outstanding. But, yeah. God, that's almost like I'm... I'm getting like my blood pressure is rising just remembering like <laughs> the sheer embarrassment of walking around. And I mean, in Ireland, right? Like, right. Oh, it's totally ridiculous. That's outstanding. <laughs> we'll get you to the calming bees very soon. Yeah. Uh, are you a reader? Yes. I mean, somewhat. I, I you know, I used to read quite a bit. Um, uh, now I like to watch YouTube videos on like esoteric sciencey things. I always watch like sciencey things. I, I, you know, we don't have a TV in our house. And so there's no like just. TV always running. Right, background. So, yeah, so like I always watch like science, like David Attenborough is like my favorite. So okay, all the blue planets and all the nature shows he's done. Um, so that's kind of my now my reading um, gotcha. because I usually read nonfiction anyway. Okay, like bees and fish, and <laughs> orchids. And I understand random things like that. But all right, so there's a fire at your house. All pets, family are safe, and let's we'll, we'll count the bees and. <laughs> Bees are safe. The, the bees, the bees are safe as well. Um, you can grab three things. What do you grab? And you can, in this case, you can lift the refrigerator and put okay. it in your pocket if you want. So my safe of all my valuables. <laughs> do you have one? Is that? Yeah. Is that? Well, I mean, one thing. I, yeah. I mean, I guess the one thing uh, you, you can't take the whole safe. Right. Immediately, I would think all these mon- expen- the most expensive things in the house. But I have a a, wa- a nice watch that my. Um, uncle had that he passed away and he gave to me and he 
he never made a lot of money, but he spent a lot on this one watch. And I always remember like, man, that is really cool. And I've always, wow, that's so awesome. Yeah. So that would be, that's the irreplaceable thing that I have. Um, what kind of watch is it? It's a, an old vintage, uh, sub, Submariner Rolex. Oh, cool. But the, so this is back with the, 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 um, aluminum bezels and stuff like, so it's pristine. Like that's the coolest thing about it. And I'm scared to wear it because I don't want to be the first part, you know, it's lasted 30, 40 years. I don't want to be the first person to put scratches on it. So it's literally just sits on my safe. I feel really bad. <laughs> it's, not, <laughs> it's not what a watch is made for. No, but it's, you still get a warm, I mean, I saw yeah. you light up talking yeah. about it. So it's yeah. still, it was cool. It's doing its job. Still, yeah. I guess. Right. You it know? brings me joy. There we, there we go. <laughs> Back to Maria or Marie or her name Yeah, is. exactly. Uh, um, the other things I would bring, it's hard to say. I anything you know for for when you get our age, I feel like everything can be replaced. That's not sentimental. So I, my kids would be devastated though. So I'd have to bring all their artwork, and then like I just try to find my kids whatever at the moment would be my kids' favorite toys. Right, the iPad for my son so he can play Minecraft. I guess. Yeah, I gotcha. Because <laughs> he would be devastated. Uh, <laughs> do you have a quote or a quip or something that inspires you? Like you know, it's funny. So this is the kind of. It's funny you ask that because I, you know, I'm not super like artsy or uh, I, I'm not super well versed in that, you know. But there's one thing is that Robert Frost poem, and I sound like this is a can't such a canned response, but I don't even know the name of the poem. I think it's like the road less traveled, the road. Yeah, the road taken. less traveled. Yeah. Okay, or maybe you know, whatever. Road less traveled. Yeah, let's let's call it that. Let's go with that. And I think it's either Carl Sandburg or Robert. Frost. I think it's Robert Frost. Anyway, but like the last line is. And I took the road less traveled and that has made all the difference. And so in my life, um, and it's not exactly how it's the way I translate it. And the, what I take from it is that too often myself and people in general, like say you're in a bad relationship and you know, you should just pull the bandaid, but you yeah. let it go until it's like this spectacular, terrible end to it. Right. Yeah. But if you had just like made the decision earlier, you would have saved months of just misery, right? Or years of misery. So for me, it's like the path of least resistance is usually not the correct path to take. So, and I try to do that in my, my, the way I live my life. Like I don't want to just necessarily do the easiest thing. You know, so sometimes confrontation is what's needed, right? Like if something's not going well, or something's not happening and you just kind of let it go, but it's like festering there, right? And, or, or, it's, it, or it's just dysfunctional or something. Making that step early and just seeing when something's not quite right, taking the step early and doing the thing that's hard, you know, the harder, the path, of, you know, it's like doing, it's, it's almost like if you were to, like you're just walking along this path, right? And you're, it's, it's downhill, right? And you're rolling this log or whatever, the stone along that you've got to roll. And then at the end, you've got to hike up this massive cliff, right? Instead, you should have been like going up early and then you're you know, then you're up there already, but instead you've, you're deciding to keep going downhill and you got to, it's like pulling money from the bank early and you got to pay it back late, right? Rather than putting it, you know. No, I don't, that's so important. Yeah, I don't think Robert Frost or whoever <laughs> wrote that, <laughs> uh, probably had that in mind but that's kind of what i take from it and it's funny it's the one thing and I, you asked me that and i was like i don't really that one i guess that's what poetry is for, right that's the one thing that really resonates with me is that one and i know it's really famous and i, I know it's not like that doesn't make it a bad answer <laughs> <laughs> but i wish is, i had something really esoteric and cool like this is about this is the the wine thing man you gotta you gotta you gotta drink the poetry that speaks to you yeah exactly just like you know yeah, nobody else right. can tell you what speaks to you 
And especially uh, thinking back to, you know, kind of your earlier life, like in high school and college, of, of you recognizing totally. the fact that you weren't taking the road less traveled and you were kind of just skating by. Absolutely. Uh, that's really cool. Yeah. Um, what do you think other people, not you, would say your superpower is? My superpower? Oh. What would Christina say? Uh, you know that I'm willing to just go like like this stuff i would just follow it 100 percent. you know uh i would say my wonderful charisma no i'm just kidding (laughs) (laughs) no like if there's something i believe in like you know starting this company i'm just like i just go for it i go for it 100 percent, and uh and and not be willing to not be afraid to fail i guess is and that's what other people would say would you agree with that analysis would you would you say that also or do you think they're I, are they missing something in, i guess so because i think i am pretty scared to film but, yeah. <laughs> but i guess that, that's what but I you would do it anyway yeah i think and and we got really lucky with the honey thing because it's you know it's working so that's very very cool uh so if that's your superpower what would be your kryptonite uh terrible organizational skills yeah <laughs> i'm horrible and i used to have a really good memory and now it's just I don't know if it's age or what, but I'm it's just terrible. So I I always feel like I have all these things I need to do, but they're just in the dark recesses of my head that I can't like articulate, and I can't, they're not sharp. You know, what do you use to, like to keep yourself like on track? And like, do you have a Google calendars? Google, yeah, <laughs> yeah literally like everything is in there, and I make a list when I have it, especially. I know there's a lot I need to do. I just make a list of everything I need to do and just literally check it off as I go. And is this is on your computer or is this a no, manual in a journal or is it just envelopes envelopes yeah understand <laughs> or like whatever scratch piece of paper i have <laughs> and i keep it with me the entire day uh, do you have a favorite failure um something that you've been able to rebound from i or would learn say from it was failing that class in college where i had to retake that yeah test that was in the biggest i mean i was like i had called my aunt because my dad said I'm not paying for another semester of college. Like, yeah, you've gone enough. Uh, and I was like, I called my aunt. I said, Hey, I may need to borrow, you know, money for tuition because I need one more semester. And I just resigned. To That's just, fucking humbling, right? Yeah. It was, it was the worst. God. It was somewhat freeing because I was like sitting there trying to write this paper and I was like, you know, I just, I can't do it. Like, it's just not going to happen. And, but yeah, it was very humbling and very uh, just disheartening. And then, Thankfully, to have that lifeline that I did not know existed. So I guess I kind of learned from that. <laughs> Maybe I mean I got lucky and I still ended up making it. But well, you learned you learned the the hard and the easy way. Right. Like you you thought it was gonna be the hard way, and then there's a little. Yeah. But that's also a nice lesson to learn too. Yeah. I think. Uh, what's your ideal no work Saturday? And if you want to throw work into it, you can. Okay. But. So, I mean, I'm going to, like, go back in time when I was, like, racing and I could still ride a bike. Like, um, uh, I would probably go for a bike ride first thing in the morning just to get all that out of the way. It's first thing, 6 a.m., yeah, 7 a.m., 9 a.m.? Yeah, 6 or 7, yeah. Okay. And be back at, like, 10. Then hang out, make breakfast with the kids and Christina and read, the, you know, read the comics with, with Stellan and um, just sort of have some family time. And then maybe do an outing, something low, like like the zoo, maybe. And then maybe some light beekeeping because I do enjoy it. You yeah, know, just go see some. But everything's going perfectly with them, right? There's right. No, no, no problems. Just checking in. Yeah, exactly. Um, then probably some tennis with you and some of the guys. Um, uh, and then, honestly, you know, I'm getting to the age where I, I 
I actually really enjoy just having beers and shooting the shit after, you know, just on the deck over there. And yeah. That's a good day. Yeah, that is a good day. Yeah. I like that day. Yeah. Uh, what recent purchase of $100 or less or right around there has had a positive impact on your life? Thank you, Tim Ferriss, for this question. <laughs> um, I So... Being unorganized, my taxes are just a disaster. So the one thing I did was, I was like 20 bucks at Staples, was I got a filing thing. So I've got my invoices paid, invoices in, receipts, because I also do some real estate and stuff. So receipts for the real estate, receipts for the bees. And now, this coming year, when I have taxes, it's all there. <laughs> all ready to be it's going? It's all there. I don't have to go over my credit card statements. Is this like a other. file box? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What no, everyone else has, probably. <laughs> For me, it was a revelation. Outstanding. Uh, what's something you, that you like that most people don't appreciate? Something I like. Uh, like all those nerdy. Like I just, I don't watch a lot of fiction stuff. It's all the nerdy, like science-y YouTube and nature shows that I watch. Have you done Curiosity Stream? No, or, but are you I going still, to do that. I have stuff like that. Like today, I found out is when I watch and uh, like a lot of the history historical ones. Uh, um, are there I, any like regular YouTube channels or, or or shows that you'll do and watch that you recommend? The today I found out that's the one I like. Today the most. I found out that's the name. Yeah, of. today I found out. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of the other ones that I really. What's like, like I, an example of what they would like find? So out? like, why do the seats in an airplane not line up with the seats and and um, stories about like this dentist in the army that like fought off like 78 Japanese soldiers and he was getting all shot up, but he was, you know, he, he supported the retreat of everybody else and, and he was a dentist. So why don't the seats line up? Just, uh, because they, the airlines try to pack as many seats in as the, so the Boeing has like a recommended seat alignment or what seat, you know, how the seat should look and they always want to pack more in. So they pack in more rows and, so that's why they never line up because they want to give you Money. less, yes, less foot, less leg room. What a just a couple more. What is what is the bad advice that you hear in beekeeping or in honey producing or in small oh business? God. Like oh, what do you hear so that much. makes you cringe? So much. Um, so there's a, a adage that's uh, ask two beekeepers and you get three answers. So there's a lot of novice beekeepers out there that presume to be experts. I mean, it happens in every field. And they typically tend to be the most vocal, and they just give so much bad advice. Across, I mean, any specifics you can you can think of? Well, I, I, without like really offending someone, a, a lot of um, so I look at things with a scientific eye. I'd like to. That's how I kind of like to look at things. And with beekeeping, there's like infinite variables that go into what hap- why something happened, and so a lot of beekeepers have very tenuous grasp on causality versus correlation. And, you know, they poured motor oil on the ground around the hives and they had less hive beetles that year. And then, so then they spout out that, Oh yeah, you need to pour motor oil on the ground. I mean, which one is terrible. (laughs) But two, like, Oh, it killed all the hive. Well, it killed everything. Right. (laughs) Right. I think Uh, that's the, that was one of the fake ads like in, um, Oh, fight club. (laughs) <laughs> they put a, did you know you can put more oil on your lawn and help your, like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, literally. I mean, but I'm, I'm not even joking. I, you hear people, just lots of things. Like, there's nothing in particular. I mean, without... There's like a thousand of them. Okay. Um, but, yeah, there's just... It's really hard to weed out the bad advice from the good yeah. with when it comes to beekeeping because it's so hip now. There's so many new beekeepers. 
Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Is there like an association? Do y'all yeah, have? Yeah, the Metro Atlanta Beekeepers Association. Okay. They, they were kind enough to put me on their board this oh, year. Oh, cool. So, yeah, they're a good organization. So what are you trying to do as a board member there? Like, what do you I'm want? I'm doing um, a lot of hive. So I'm kind of doing that outreach to the new beekeepers. I'm doing a lot of um, hive inspections where they can all come and kind of I sort of talk them through. Um, and there's some mentorship programs, but I don't, I have enough people that just through business and stuff that they email me questions all the time. So I have, it's really good to have a mentor in beekeeping to, there's a million ways to skin a cat, but as long as your way works and you can copy that, it's repeatable, then you can, what that meant, you know, you, it's good to have a mentor that is successful. Right. Um, that model here at least doesn't work quite as well because there's, I would have, 25 mentees because there's so many new ones. Well, if somebody is interested in, in pursuing this, where, where would you point them to the first step? Uh, I would start attending me. Well, one go online. Like there's, um, see again, like it's a minefield on YouTube. Find some ones that really know what they're doing. Um, read some of the good books. Uh, and then, um, even beekeeping for dummies, right? Like even the, like the, just the, the, just the generic, the, the foundation of knowledge um, and then go to the meetings. So we, uh, I, the meetings I think are every third Tuesday. Um, but well, we'll uh, link to it on the show. Notes. Yeah. yeah. So Sorry. If I'm so still. terrible at this. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> Can't be expected to know everything all the top of your Yeah. Head. But it go, there's a, they have a, um, there's a mentoring session 30 minutes prior and just not being scared to go up to someone and just don't be scared to ask questions. Cause a lot of times we'll have these mentoring sessions and people will come and they just, don't even know where to start asking. I mean, just yeah. from the beginning. Like, well, it's a ton. Know, it's a yeah, lot. It's like Lance Armstrong wasn't born like a crazy cyclist, right? You have to learn and, and, and practice and yeah. get better. Uh, one final question. How do you feel about couponing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, pro- positive? Pro? <laughs> <laughs> Rumor has it you're an excellent couponer. Couponer? Uh, uh, what's your preferred pronunciation? Couponer, I guess. Uh yeah, so I got really sick. Um, I got some weird virus in December, and I was bedridden for almost a month. And so I started going on YouTube, and I started getting really into these credit card points. Um, and, like, all these different credit cards you can get, like Chase and American Express and Bank of America and all these different banks. And and then part of it is, so there's some credit cards that have these rotating categories. And one of them was... Um, um, drugstores like CVS and man those things are so expensive but if you use all these coupons you can things also are like free there it's, oh man it's so embarrassing I started, <laughs> I started I think it's awesome <laughs> I started watching all these YouTube channels with like the savvy couponer and all that stuff <laughs> and like what you need to be buying at the CVS and oh my god it's so crazy but I would go and because um, you know you had to spend like three thousand dollars at the CVS in order to maximize all your stuff, and it's hard to spend three thousand. Well, CVS and uh, gas, I guess, and so a lot of us buying gift cards and stuff from there. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in order to not, in order to make it work, you couldn't just spend ten dollars on a DiGiorno's at at CVS. You actually right. had to use these coupons to make it actually worthwhile. So. Um, and, and, you know, honestly, the kids get really into it, too. So the kids, it's so adorable. So when they were young, we would, I like, when I get the news, we still get the newspaper. On Sunday, 
we don't read anything. We go straight to the we coupons. We go straight to the coupons. And he's so cute. So he'll get like the sprouts one and he'll just start cutting out a picture of like a plum. We go, I got a coupon. You know, so oh my oh, God, I know. that's adorable. And they're little safety scissors and it's all jagged <laughs> and stuff. You sit on the floor. Oh, it, it totally. And then you get to take him shopping and get, yeah. he gets to use his coupon? Absolutely. It was, oh, and that, he's grown out of it, which is sad. Maybe, ten, maybe my daughter, four year old daughter, Tony, can <laughs> take up the reins, but. Now he's interested in the comics. Sure, sure. But, well, you got to move on. Yeah, but oh, I love it. I loved it. I mean, that was the first thing. He would go run out and get the paper, and we'd just sit on the floor and do it on the rug. That's outstanding. Yeah. Brendan Ty, thank you for being on the podcast. This <laughs> has been you. a lot of fun. Oh, it's been an honor. I'm so oh, so happy you asked. Uh, where can people find you online? If they want to buy some of your honey, where, they can, where can they find you? Talk to me. All right. So you can always order online. It's honeynextdoor.com, um, and kind of our flagship store is um the beehive which is a co-op of uh atlanta goods uh atlanta artisans and makers um in the edgewood retail district by like the lowe's and target and kroger and best buy it's across the street from the wells fargo and we they literally carry everything we sell but a lot of what we do is farmer's market so we're in pond city market tuesday afternoons decatur wednesday afternoons east atlanta thursday afternoons decatur saturday mornings morningside saturday mornings and then Every festival, like M.M. Park, Kirkwood Spring Fling, all of them. Outstanding people. He's around. Go get the honey. It's amazing. Until we meet again, thanks a lot, Brandon. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Origin Story Podcast. The show is produced by Pinecone Turkey. To learn more about Pinecone Turkey, visit pineconeturkey.com, or you can sign up for the Flock email, a twice-a-month newsletter that delivers a short film, poetry, a short story, and visual art right to your inbox. It's your monthly dose of art curated by Pinecone Turkey. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by leaving us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for listening.